Hey everybody, welcome back to Gray Malkin Lane's newest Patreon episode where I just get to hang out with my friends and talk about characters. Uh, I am thrilled to be joined by my uh, previous podcast friend, but we got to hang out for a couple of hours and have tea in uh, New York City when I was there for FlameCon. Uh, so excited to hang with uh, Hussein Rashid today. How are you, Hussein? Hey, Chad, thanks for having me on. And it was a blast to meet you at FlameCon a couple of weeks ago. It was so good to see you. My brain was kind of turning in circles. I had met so many people that I know from the pod in real life. Uh, the, <laughs> the next episode I'm dropping after this uh, recording is going to be with Sam Humphreys, which I recorded the day after FlameCon. And uh, Sam's like, oh, who did you get to meet? And I was like, oh, Sam, there were so many people. He's like, oh, look at me. I'm Chad and I'm so important and I have so many <laughs> new friends. He, like he just read me for a filth. It was... <laughs> it was a lot of fun uh but yeah, it, it, you know but it's not a and that was great oh no thank you thank you i'm really glad and you know it makes sense a flame con felt like an a dedicated x-men con with the number of people running around who had their x shirts on or were on staff and some of the x title it was amazing it was a i mean it's a queer con and there's something about x-men and queerness uh we get to I don't know. There's a lot of great stuff. We, <laughs> I just recorded with Tom Brevoort a few days ago and we talked about Juggernaut and Black Tom and he made the joke like, yeah, they've been married for decades. And I'm like, Tom, are you confirming that Juggernaut and Black Tom are gay? He goes, no, I'm not confirming. <laughs> I was, uh, uh, yeah. oh, 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 although we do come back into that when uh, when we find out in this, this episode that Juggernaut and She-Hulk had a thing and mm -hmm. he's like, you know, there's certain things women do that men don't do. And you're like, wait, did, are you doing something with Black Tom here? That actually wasn't She-Hulk. It uh there's there's a, a Marvel story. People were really upset about Juggernaut and She-Hulk sleeping together. So when Dan Slott took over the She-Hulk title, which is such a good run if you haven't read it, he uh he goes back to an old parallel earth that the Fantastic Four encountered called Earth hyphen A. And there are, <laughs> he does this weird story where there are counterparts of people from our Earth who will occasionally come to Earth 616 and take their place. And he tells the story that it was this Earth A She-Hulk during some un unauthorized time on Earth. She's the one that slept with the juggernaut because he hated the story so much he wanted to undo it. <laughs> I, I'm actually really glad to hear that uh, because that felt like out of character for Jen Walters. But sleep with a client who's also a mass murdering supervillain. Yes, exa exactly. Just because he likes, uh, well, well, we'll get into that. I don't want to jump too far ahead. Uh, but, you know, I felt like there was a Black Tom moment in there regardless. Where Absolutely. You know. Uh, you know, Black Tom murdered a child just before that. <laughs> we'll get to the trial of Black Tom one day on my podcast, but not for a minute. We have a lot to a lot of ground to cover in between. I, uh, I was telling you in New York, I, I've mapped out content and I have a good like 15 months of stuff still before we get to giant size number one. There's still a shocking amount of content to cover, uh, but lots of fun stuff coming up. Uh, you and I, of course, met through the podcast initially through your uh, your Ms. Marvel book that you edited with Jessica Baldonzi. And I'm thrilled that we've become friends. Uh, Jessica as well. Jessica's Absolutely. coming back on the podcast in a few weeks for the second time. Uh, how are things going for you, man? Tell everybody a little bit about uh, you and your relationship with comics, if they're unfamiliar. Yeah, absolutely, Chad. Uh, thank you. Yeah, so like you said, uh, we connected through this volume I coded with Jessica on Miss Marvel. Uh, I am a part-time academic or freelance academic, 
Uh, I work on religion and popular culture. Um, so you're going to hear a lot of that today as we talk about uh, Sidorak, or uh, as Chad was suggesting, maybe it's Saeed Tarak, who's, uh, you know, his his human alter ego. Uh and I've been an X-Men fan since I was a kid. And that's the one place where I won't turn my critical eye is the X-Men series, like my academic critical eye. Like I'll read it for plot holes and why are you writing this character this way? But, um, you know, that's the X-Men is still my joy and I'll talk geek talk about it rather than academic talk. But we'll we'll bring in a little bit of the religion today. Uh, Hussein and I have wildly different backgrounds, but a shared love of the X-Men. Hussein also uh, wrote an essay in one of the Marvel Voices uh, uh uh, books they do the anthology uh, just on the blog it wasn't uh, it wasn't in a book at least oh, not pardon. yet pardon pardon yeah, yeah, no worries uh it's great though fantastic i haven't read it since i first interviewed you but it's uh it's a great read uh when we are presenting uh these patreon episodes i will pick a character with my guest and then do kind of a deep dive into their whole history which takes a lot of time but i really love it uh you know people are familiar with me from the handbooks i love putting together and weaving together the narratives and history. That's something I've nerded out over ever since I was a kid. Uh, and I have to get kind of a template in my mind. If I'm studying a character, I don't know, like Fred Duncan uh, or or the Changeling, that's a completely different brain space than it is for Sidorak. And what Hussein was referencing a minute ago, I was joking in a text earlier, like, I'm going to go write the story of Sidorak coming to Earth and taking on the human guise of Sai Torak, which was just... My dad joke brain kicking. <laughs> uh, I loved it. I think you should run with it. Oh, I have. I, I literally will sometimes after these Patreon episodes I will, or the trials, I will literally sit down and and write a story. I've written a Toad story. I've written a Zelda Bernard, uh, uh, Vera and Candy story. I doubt they will ever see the light of day. I've written a Blob story. Uh, I love sitting down and piecing their their character stuff together. Uh, Hussein, when I first presented you with this idea, what made you decide on Sidorak? Um, I think you uh, on your on the regular podcast and on Patreon episodes had done something with the Juggernaut, uh, talking about uh, how we're sort of introduced to the character. Mm -hmm. And really tying it back into Sidorak in ways like, I mean, I know Juggernaut's connected to Sidorak, but I find Kane Marco a really fascinating character. And I think you added some real depth to my understanding to him through the lens of Sidorak. So I was like, okay, this actually sounds kind of cool. Um, and I, it's not, it's not, you know, I don't think about Sidorak as a character. And so I don't know a lot about him. And, you know, the deep dive seemed like a great opportunity just to, to get into the lore, but also to learn a little bit more and appreciate uh, Kane Marco a little bit. You are one of my guests who is willing to do their homework, which I always appreciate because uh, I, <laughs> I I sent Hussein eight typed pages of notes on Sidorak after my historical <laughs> review. Uh, for those of you that, <laughs> that have not yet worked with me in this format, when I did that juggernaut trial, that was one of my rites of passage moments as a podcaster because two crazy things happened. Number one, I tried to do his whole history comprehensively, which is a bold undertaking. And I invited a larger panel of guests to participate, many of them professionals. So I had like Anthony Oliveira and like uh, uh, Leah Williams and some other folks on. And uh, I gave everybody like time limit instructions so that I could keep us under two hours, but we went over four and everybody was gracious and kind, but I was so stressed out. They taught me a really good lesson about uh, facilitating podcasts. And I always wanna make sure everybody has a great time, but also feels like their time is respected. Uh, but yeah, that Juggernaut episode, 
completely changed my understanding of the character as well. I remember writing up, I'm a, I'm a, a therapist in my day job. Uh, I remember writing up like a, a, a write-up of Juggernaut's like mental health. And I'm like, this guy is just a narcissistic asshole who destroys everything in his path. But after we did that episode, I'm like, oh, oh no, that's not what he is at all. <laughs> <laughs> so when we spend time on a character, it's fun. Uh, Sidorak is fun for me uh, for a couple of reasons. Much like when I did the episodes on, uh, or the Patreon episodes on Vera Cantor and uh, Bobby Drake's parents, we're taking characters who are indelibly associated with a larger character, in this case, Beast and Iceman, and then exploring who they are through the lens of their supporting cast in a way. And we have a lot of different interpretations of Juggernaut over the years, but behind the scenes always is Sidorak, who has never received any concise characterization. He's a character who gets picked up every few years, used for one or two issues, almost always in conjunction with Juggernaut, uh, sometimes in conjunction with Doctor Strange. But uh, in order for us to make sense of this character, we have to weave together the narrative and try to look in between the lines to figure out who he is and what he represents. Uh, uh, how do you say it? Do you say Sidorak? I, I go with Sidorak, yeah. I know Derek Kunskin, he's in Canada, says Sidorak. Uh, I was I was in my brain this morning thinking it could be like Sidorak, uh, Sitoric, like I was going through all right. these different pronunciations, but <laughs> I don't know the official. We're just going to call him Sidorak. It's C-Y-T-T-O-R-A-K, which is a stanley nonsense word to my knowledge it does not come from anywhere in particular i looked <laughs> i couldn't find anything what is it that you love about the juggernaut hussein it's not juggernaut it's kane marco right I'm, and i mean i think one of the things we we come into is juggernaut is an avatar of sidorak and we see multiple juggernauts through obviously through the life of kane marco and going backwards and forwards i'm fascinated by kane marco because i think Right. I'm firmly in the camp. Professor X is a jerk. And I think Kane Marco is one of his first victims. Right. It's his uh, stepbrother. Stepbrother, right? Not half brother. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Stepbrother. Uh, his yeah, stepbrother. That, that origin story is like very Hamlet. Xavier's dad yeah. dies and then his mom marries his uncle. It's not actually his uncle. And then he gets an evil stepbrother. Yeah. That's kind right. of the way the story is told at the beginning. Um, and then you realize that, no. Professor X is a jerk even when, you know, it's it starts young and it just sort of develops. Um, but I think I think what I'm really fascinated by in the X universe, like, you know, we all create these head cannons, and I love going back to messy characters like Kane and trying to figure out how to make them whole in my own head, right? Like, what is it? Which is why I absolutely abhor Sidorak as we're getting to today because I cannot square that circle. But I think Kane is such a wonderful and complex character. And I think he's been done dirty a lot. And and which is not to say I think he's a good guy. I don't, I, you know, I, I would love to see Redemption Arc, but he's done a lot of crap that I don't think can be redeemed. But that doesn't mean he's not a complex character that we can, you know, if we read for, for complexity, I like him uh, for, for that reason. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of depth there. I'm interviewing Chuck Austin in my podcast in a couple of weeks and uh, I've already started prepping and we've got a lot of juggernaut stuff because Chuck Austin uh, historically wrote some of the most hated X-Men storylines or moments for some characters, uh, but he also had a pretty solid run. He brought Northstar into the team. Uh, he did some crazy stuff with a lot of characters. It's very soap opera-esque. But Juggernaut, I think for many people, his use of Juggernaut is the one thing that he really sh uh, shined with. 
Uh, he gave a very human side, a very heroic yeah. side to this character, which kind of changed him forever after. But yeah, I really like him too. Um, let's jump in with uh, Sidorak and we'll just kind of have some conversations yeah. on the way. Uh, in Strange Tales number 124, this is back when Marvel took over uh, some of their older publications that had like monsters and westerns and romances. And then they made them into superhero books. They, they usually had split books. They'd be like Iron Man and Doctor Strange or like Ant-Man and the Submariner. You know, like there was uh, two part stories. Uh, Stanley and Steve Ditko were telling uh, Strange, uh, Doctor Strange stories. This is in September 1964. So just a year after the X-Men debuted. Uh, Dr. St Dr. Strange was practicing the dark arts back then, and he was regularly channeling other dimensional entities in his spells. And his spells for many years uh, were written as like uh, four line poems with rhyming stanzas uh, that would always try to elicit some sort of event uh, and use the names of gods as he's like, uh, the way we're kind of supposed to understand this aspect of Marvel magic, which, oh my God, we could do a whole four hour episode on the rules of Marvel magic. They've literally written books about how complex it is. But in this space, he would draw on entities for a particular purpose. So he's, he's channeling uh, energies or powers from entities in other realms and then weaving them together with these rhyming stanzas in order to elicit a spell. And there's a lot of these guys. We're going to talk about some of them today. Uh, Sidorak is probably the most explored among these other dimensional magical entities, but we've got uh, we've got gods in other realms like Watum and Oshtur and Ragador and Hoggoth, and they all have kind of their own thing, right? Hoggoth is associated with ice, where Icon is associated with like illusion, and mm -hmm. uh, Watum is associated with wind and water. Uh, Juggernaut uh, comes from Sidorak. So Sidorak is, is always associated with kind of like rage and fire and anger. And whenever Strange is casting these spells, which is pretty frequently over the decades, he'll always use phrases like the crimson bands of Sidorak uh, or uh, Baron Mordo uh, casts a spell once that calls, the, calls upon the crimson circle of Sidorak. And these bonds are meant to be unbreakable. You'll see like red bands of energy form around people or uh, or like a red sphere. And it's un impenetrable, like almost adamantium style, unbreakable, unstoppable, if you will. Uh, and that's kind of where we begin with uh, Sidorak as this kind of extra dimensional entity. Now, Marvel has so many pantheons of gods that live in other realms and affect the lives of mortals. Uh, Hussein, who are some of your favorites? I well, so uh, first of all, before we get into some of my favorites, I have to say part of what I like or what I dislike about Sidorak, and I think he sort of represents Marvel's thing with religion. Is Sidorak uh, uh, a god or is he a demon? Is Hogoth a god or a demon? Right? I mean, they use these terms almost interchangeably in the in the early period, right? I think they're more consistent a little bit later on, um, because when you think about it, uh, uh, what's oh, sorry, total. It's, we're recording on Monday, Labor Day, and I've only had two cups of tea. Um, <laughs> but it's uh, Strange's uh, Domoronu, right? Is that yeah. his nemesis, right? Domoronu. Uh, uh, Baron Mordo? No, no, uh, the demon that he oh, fights. Dor uh, Dormammu, excuse me. Dormammu, Dormammu, thank you. I was like, uh, that's, that's the M's are in the wrong place, Dormammu. Uh, Dormammu is, uh, is a demon. Right, he's not a god, but always Sidorak a god, and then eventually Dormammu becomes a god, and then he goes back to being a demon. But so there's always that that little bit of that's always irked me about Marvel and religion. But in terms of the 
sort of these supernatural beings. Um, I I have to be honest. I I um I've always liked uh, Ileana's pet demons from Limbo. They're they're always my favorites. Uh, and then you know the ones we get from uh, uh, from the Inferno storyline as well uh, with despair and uh, uh, the one that's N apostrophe I can never say. Nastir is how I say it. Nastir, yeah, sure, we'll go with that. Well, and Nastir is the one I believe that makes the deal with Madeline Pryor and Cameron yep. Hodge to, yep. to, you know, there's the deal with the devil thing. So, I, I mean, we could step out into the, the wider mythos of Marvel. We have characters like Mephisto, who represents the devil, obviously. Uh, there's Zadkiel in Ghost Rider or Zarathos. We have all kinds of entities that are making deals with mortals who then get cursed. Now, the pantheons of gods in Marvel, the most known ones are the uh, the gods of Olympia, the, the you know Zeus and Hercules, and then of course the gods of Asgard. All of them have a realm. All of them have some sort of relationship or association with Earth and its history. Uh, I'm doing a lot of research on the Ungarai right now, the uh, the demons who show up through the cairn on the X-Men grounds all the time. Uh, right. uh, yeah, I'm yeah. doing an episode with uh, with Ariana uh, Mare in a few weeks on the, the Ungarai. And uh, it's kind of the same thing. There's uh, Kirok is their leader in another realm. People will open these things and make deals. Uh, Ilyana goes to Limbo, where you have a certain ruling council. Modern books have often explained that a lot of these realms have uh, uh, like a sorcerer supreme who is placed in charge of, uh, you know, utilizing these magical entities. Uh, and like Dormammu, as an example, is a member of the Faltine race who are like little fire guys. But he has he has risen to the leadership of the dark dimension most often. There's also been like Umar and Clea and other characters who have that. But the dark dimension is its own place where Doctor Strange will channel Dormammu's energy and spells sometimes. Mm -hmm. But he's also he's also just like a really mean dude who wants to conquer Earth. So you'll see Dormammu making deals with mortals or you'll see him fighting Strange hand to hand. Uh, the idea being that he's most powerful in his own realm uh, I'm thinking of characters like Tiboro, uh, who's from the purple dimension. There's there's a bunch of these strange characters who I think they are meant to be the gods of their own realms. But in their relationship with mortals on Earth 616, it's almost as though they are in a god and or devil form and or demon form based on yeah. what their what their thing is. Right. Uh, so I think that's kind of the context we have to place Sidorak in. He's part of this kind of pantheon of wider gods, but he's completely unique in that he has his own realm, which is the Crimson Cosmos, where he is supremely powerful and he's obsessed with mortals and wants to have influence in our realm, sometimes to great effect. And sometimes he doesn't even know what's going on. And we'll talk about some of his yeah. portrayals over the years. Uh, thoughts on thoughts on that? Well, I, I think that's a great way to frame it. I think that clarifies a lot for me in terms of why gods versus demons and, you know, gods for us. I mean, we talk about Thor as a god. I don't know if Sidorak falls into that same category, but if you say, oh, no, Sidorak's the god of the Crimson Cosmos, that makes more sense. But I still think we we get issues where, you know, we find people are worshipping Sidorak in uh, Korea slash Chonsong, you know, depending on what era we're looking at. In Thailand, um, yeah, there's there's in Thailand, have right. temples built to him on our planet. Um, so there's a little bit of that, but I have to be honest. When I first remember coming across Sidorak was in a Doctor Strange story, 
And I never understood Sidorak to be a person. I understood it to be a realm. And I think there's some, um, and and I know we'll get into this, but for me, that's always been an issue is that when Strange is calling on Hogoth or on Sidorak, is he calling on those individual gods of those realms or is he calling on the realms of those individuals, right? Is it the Crimson Bands of Sidorak because he's taking something or, or, or summoning or calling forth part of Sidorak, the individual, or is this just he's accessing the crimson cosmos and pulling forwards from there? I think it probably could be phrased either way. When he calls on Dormammu, he seems to be drawing on the energy of the dark dimension. But when Dormammu right. is the ruler of the dark dimension, are they one and the same? Right? We have Sidorak. Right. We have Sidorak a couple different times in his history saying he's one with the crimson cosmos. Uh, he also seems to lack awareness of anything that's going on. We we do not have a backstory for this character. We're given a lot of mythology for him and his relationship with Earth, but we do not know if he is an entity or a sorcerer who rose to power. We do not know if he's a demon. We do not know if he has a specific human form because he's seen in multiple different forms over the years. Mm -hmm. uh, there is a story to be told there. And these other, these other uh, entities, uh, for example, Agamotto is one, right? Strange yeah. has the eye of Agamotto. And we have seen portrayals of Agamotto as a wizard or sorcerer on Earth. Right now, in, uh, Jason Aaron's doing Avengers 1 million BC, and Agamotto is part of that team. He's like in a oh. wizard form, interacting with the Phoenix Force, who's another member of the team. Uh, so the the Marble Earth has these long connections to these other dimensional realms. Uh, Sidorak seems to most often interact with people either through artifacts that he has built. So like the Crimson Gem, and we're going to get into all of that. Right. Just like Watum has the Wands of Watum. These are artifacts that if you get them, you can wield the power. But you can also draw upon his essence or power through certain spells that are cast. And then there are also devices built by different characters at times or marks like sorceress marks that will allow you to wield Sidorak's power temporarily. And those seem to be less connected to Sidorak. Like you can draw on him independently through spells, you can use his artifacts or you can use man-made artifacts that draw on his power. And those all seem to be different types of stories. Uh, I don't know. It's it's complex because it, it's a lot to sort out. And, you, you know, I don't think the writers who are telling Sidorak stories are always doing all of their homework based on what's done before. Because there's right. several different portrayals, which in my mind, and I'll get to this right at the beginning, uh, we do not have a clear understanding of what Sidorak's story is. There's mythology built around him, but there's different stories told regarding his influence on Earth and how he came to be. And they don't all match up. Which leads you to, uh, for, for me at least, which leads me to leave, we're, we're reading legend, we're reading stories, right. just like in religion, that don't always tell the same version of what the actual canon might be. Uh, so I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. And actually, even before we continue, uh, I know you have some things to say about Marvel's portrayal of, or, or understanding of religion itself. Well, no, I, I mean, I think you've done a, a great job of walking us through the case, which is, you know, I think there's a lot about... Um, Myth making, you know, I, I do when I when I teach my students in religious studies, we use this, this term myth. And I think people outside of the discipline of religion say, oh, you're saying it's not true. It's not real. But but myths for scholars of religion is where we don't care if it's true or not. We want to know. You believe this. What happens as a result of this belief? Right. So we're not saying it's true or it's not true. It's a myth. It's a founding myth. So the sacrifice of Abraham. Um uh, the uh, 
the mothership of the nation of Islam, right? Like, I mean, you've got uh, these sorts of myths and we don't mean it dismissively or pejoratively. And so for me, I think that's a great way to look at what we're seeing with Sidorak is that these are foundational myths for people who worship Sidorak. Doesn't mean we don't know what the objective truth is if one can, can even say such a thing exists, but we're really trying to figure out, well, what are people doing based on that? For me, where it breaks down is, you know, once you start creating that, there have once you start creating that mythos, there have to be consistent, uh, consistent actions that come out of it, right? So, to become the juggernaut, do you need to touch the crimson gem or not? For sometimes we see that, and then in one of the stories we look at today, Kane is fighting a new juggernaut who we've never seen touch the crimson gem. Now, maybe it happened off panel, but maybe somebody just forgot that that was a thing. You know, and you're just like, Sidorak is like, nope, you're the new juggernaut. We're going to give you the juice, you know. Well, and we've seen at least three distinct portrayals of juggernauts being powered. We'll get to those as we go through them. Yeah. Uh, I think Marvel often will have cults that will worship some version of some god. There's the cult of the living pharaoh or right. uh, clan Akaba who worships apocalypse. And they're these... They're often portrayed as these forgotten things, but when they show up in stories, suddenly they'll have a ton of influence and like places of worship. When the Whenever we see cults that are worshiping Sidorak, we tend to see a god who is obsessed with being deified. Uh, and that, that, is a, that is a consistent thing in Marvel's portrayal of many other dimensional gods is the more belief you put into them, the stronger they become. Uh, there's literally Marvel's, uh, what, what's it called? The... the uh, the Church of Human, not Humanity. Oh God, it's the Warlock characters. Uh, it'll come to me in a minute. There's a giant. There's a giant like worshiping the Universal Church of Truth. That's what it's called. There's okay, a yeah, yeah. there's a fleet of starships that fight Warlock all the time because Warlock's the messianic story, right? And uh, their their engines are literally powered by belief. Like the more belief they have, the stronger their ships become. And Sidorak seems uh, his cult if we call it a cult, his, his worshipers often seem obsessed with restoring him to glory, paving a path for him to return to earth and dominate the entire planet as we get hints that he did in the past at some point. And frankly, we get the same types of stories with the Engarai, uh, who people will try to open spaces for them to conquer the planet uh, or draw upon their power. Uh, so there's many, many versions of that story uh, yeah. over the years. It's pretty fascinating. There's one point in, in Sidorak's uh, most recent appearance, to my knowledge, where uh, some of his followers call him Rage Father. I was almost going to introduce you as, welcome to our Rage <laughs> Father, Hussein Rashid. <laughs> Are you a Rage well, Father, Hussein? I, well, you know, the funny thing is, we, we agreed to do Sidorak and, and uh, the Crimson Cosmos and the Crimson Jam. And uh, I'm red-green deficient. I can't see red-green properly. And so it was like, yeah, you know, I, I don't know if that makes any sense if I can't see myself then. Wonder, Man is, not, Wonder Man is not your favorite character that I'm picturing his no, no. Christmas tree costume. <laughs> oh, no, that, that that just freaks me out. Um, and, and it's funny, you know, 10% of the male population of the United States is red, green deficient. And you want to know what spectrum uh, Microsoft chose for their red and green cell colors is the exact spectrum 10% of men can't see. Oh, that's uh, that's uh, it's Microsoft design in a nutshell. <laughs> yes, 
Sidorak loves himself the color crimson. Not just red, but crimson, crimson specifically. Crimson, exactly. Everything is crimson. Uh, just to note, as we're getting into this, I, I mentioned earlier, Hussein and I come from pretty different uh, life experiences. I grew up very conservatively Mormon uh, in a place where it really dominated my brain and psychology for a long time until I developed a wider understanding of the world. I now do a lot of focused therapy work with clients who are leaving Mormonism. And I do a lot of like religious emotional processing with people. Uh, and I work with people from all walks of life, of course, but I'm a gay man in Salt Lake City and people <laughs> will seek me out uh, professionally for help in uh, navigating, you know, pretty, pretty big things. Uh, uh, do you want to share a little bit of your background and what you're doing professionally, Hussein? I think it's helpful when we're having these deep conversations to yeah. have a understanding where we come from. So I wear a couple of different hats. So on the on the personal side, uh, Chad, just to mirror uh, what you offered, I grew up a child of immigrants, uh, Muslim background, um, uh, came into religion more fully on my own when I got to college. Um, so don't let those, uh, you know, those of you who are worried about your kids going off to college and becoming atheists, let them be atheists. They'll come back if you did it right. And if you didn't do it right, it's probably good they're atheists. Uh, and then... Uh, you know, I study religion professionally as well as being a community uh, religious leader. So sort of two hats, two sides of the study of religion, if you will. Um, yeah. And professionally. So, yeah, I study religion. As I said, I study religion and popular culture. So television, movies, comics, uh, novels, you name it, I'll, I'll study religion in that space. I'm fascinated uh, so by religion and psychology around religion. And I am very much about people's right to worship, of course, but I almost view, and I don't want this to sound disrespectful to any of our religious listeners, I almost view a lot of people who follow religion as those who are very blind to the culture around religion, or it's uh, so much of religion, I think, has to do with people's ability to conform, to follow the rules, to fit into the community. And so much of humanity are outliers to all of that. And I see a lot of religion or religious history from a lot of places that are very exclusive. Here's how to be part of the group and anyone else is not part of us. And we're going to write a mythology to show why everyone else doesn't belong. Yeah. And I know that sounds a little bit oversimplified, but I, as, as a person who grew up as an outsider who didn't fit in and tried to, I think that's kind of affects my view of all of this. There's not a lot of religion in today, except that we're going to be tossing the word God and cult around once in a while. Right. <laughs> but I think it's fascinating when we view it so, all. So I'll chime in, if I may, uh, just taking off the academic hat and putting more on the theology hat, right? Which is also scholastic, but you know, whatever. Uh, and I, and I think I agree with you. I mean, I think religion is about drawing boundaries, right? But we draw boundaries in our life every day. I'm a New Yorker. There is a thing between us and New Jersey. Like that border is real. It means something, right? Sure. Uh, I'm I'm a Yankees fan. You don't talk to Red Sox fans. Like that's forbidden. It's like it's like eating pig for a Muslim. You just don't do it. Uh, and so you know we we draw these boundaries all the time. And I but I think you're right. Is that there are ways in which conforming can become really detrimental, right? So I come at religion as a believer from somebody who's like. How does this allow me to explore the world? And I think so much of religion in its worst manifestations are about keeping you from exploring the world. You know, you talk about conformity, but when you think about some of the most beautiful pieces of art uh, we have in the world, uh, whether it is Beethoven or the Taj Mahal, or uh, apropos of our conversation tonight, today, 
the Jagannath temple, the Hindu Jagannath temple in India, right? These all come from nonconformity or imagining beyond our limitations. And so I hear what you're saying and I, I agree with you. And I think there's the other side of religion as well, which is how Absolutely. do you, how do you encourage saying, yes, we're different and differences are important, but being different is a source of creation, not a source of rejection or conflict. I, uh, I am very happily ex-Mormon now. Much of my family is still very practicing Mormon, however. And to use my mom as an example of this, she is a believing Mormon in a church that is not very kind to queer people. But she is a very wonderful mother to her queer children and grandchildren. And I think there's contradiction in all people. I think you can be both of one and another at the same time. Uh, and and uh, any time we are viewing all of this, it's kind of tricky because people get lost in the culture or the doctrine of something. And then it often results in, I'm so focused on this that I interpret my world in that way, right? Yeah. We look at politics through a very conservative lens, for example, speaking for the people of Utah quite frequently, where I'm quite liberal. I am often processing with people in therapy when we're looking at the Christian God, for example, how there's three very different portrayals and they don't often often reside in the same spot in our brain. There is the very benevolent, loving, uh, you know, I return you to me with open arms because mm -hmm. I love you kind of God. There's like the Old Testament God where if you defy me, I will destroy you. And then there's the more supernatural God where, you know, he lives and there's rules regarding what heaven looks like and how the angels are sent down and all of the, all of the mythos around it. And that's how I tend to process it. And Sidorak is not the benevolent God. <laughs> He's the Old Testament rage God uh, and perhaps the supernatural God all at the same time. Uh, so for those that worship him, this is a very interesting religion because he demands full fealty. <laughs> and, you know, Chad, I think for me, this is the this is the thing where I'm fascinated by religion in the Marvel universe, right? You're talking about Sidorak and this conception, but the ways that the writers are so deeply influenced by their times, right? Like to even talk about the Old Testament, it's the Old Testament only for Christians, right? It's not the Old Testament for Jews. It's not the Old Testament for Muslims right. who, who see themselves as part of that same revelatory tradition. Uh, as a Muslim, I, I don't want to speak for my for for uh, the Jewish community, but as a Muslim. You know, the God of the Tanakh, uh, of the Hebrew Bible, specifically the Torah, is a loving God. Why would God create if God didn't love? Why would God uh, help free the enslaved peoples if God didn't love them? Right? That there's that it's a there's a very loving, tender God there. And you see that I think a lot in the story of Joseph, for example, um, in, in the book of Genesis. And I think that this is really when we look at Marvel and you're looking at Sidorak, I agree that this is a wrathful God. And how much of that is impacted by saying, well, Christianity has a loving God, therefore the Hebrew God has to be, the Jewish God has to be angry because we're, we have the better God, right? And so reading back, right? And it, again, this is not an indictment of the writers. We all do this. We all talk and speak the language of the environment we're in. But for me, like looking at how Sidorak is portrayed across time is really interesting or how Hogoth is, is, comes up or how even Thor is portrayed, right? I mean, Thor becomes very Jesus-like in the last 15 years, Um in ways that are really surprising. Superman is a perfect example, right? Yeah. His origin story is the Moses story, right? He's sent off on a reed to save his people, uh, on a reed basket to save his people. He ends up on earth where we're the pharaohs. He ends up finding the mini city of, uh, I forget what the little city's called, you know, but that all the Kryptonians are survive, survive in. Um, 
by the way, in case your audience hasn't figured this out, if I haven't prepped something, my mind, it's all in my head, but I need somebody to remind me. I've, uh, I trip over my tongue on this podcast all the time. All the time. <laughs> right. But then, you know, he dies and he comes back and he becomes Jesus. And you're like, you know, that's, you know, because we're just on the 30th anniversary of the death of Superman now. Right. It was, it was last weekend. Yeah. And so really just thinking about, uh, you know, these writers are writing what the, the culture and context that they're in. Um, and so it's really important. And I most think of our comics, I think, are written by Christian-influenced authors. Most most of right. our comics. Right. I, again, this is a fun part. Yeah, so I, you know, I, I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole, but this is this is my wheelhouse now, right? Is you know, I think a lot about the Matrix, the original Matrix movie, with the Wachowski siblings did. And if you look at it, it's it's a Jesus story, right? You have the Savior. He dies. It comes back to life. He saves everybody. But when you read what the Wachowski siblings are saying about the film, they're like, no, it's a Buddhist allegory. It's about letting go of the world. And you're like, oh, this is so fascinating. Their intent, their conscious, explicit intent, intent was to make an allegory of Buddhism. But the framing was so Christian because they couldn't get away from it because that's the environment in which they live. And we all read it as a Christian allegory because that's the environment in which we, as a Muslim, yeah, yeah. as a scholar of religion, right? And so just, to, just you know, for me, that's what's fun about some of this is saying like, yeah, Sidorak is angry. Where are they pulling that from? And I know that's not within the scope of the podcast, but for me, that's sort of the thing I do is like, where does that come from? And we're going to use the, the term cult a lot today. I probably won't use it as much because, you know, again, a cult is simply a religion that never got power. Uh, we talk about the Jesus cult until it becomes the empire. Uh, so just really thinking through some of that context and, and how we're, uh, and, and how it structures a lot of these stories, I think is so much fun. I mean, we could probably find a Stanley interview from somewhere, but even as he's writing Doctor Strange as a practitioner of dark magic, and he's drawing on these realms, and he's making up these names of gods from other realms that grant strange power. I mean, that's where Sidorak starts. Marvel also yeah. will we'll get ones that are reintroduced that we just add to the pantheon. Uh, for example, if you read Runaways, the uh, yeah. the pride worship, the gibberim, which is directly yeah. biblically referenced, but also a completely new race for for Marvel, where we have like the chaos god, Chaton or Set, who are yeah. woven into the Marvel fabric for specific characters like the Scarlet Witch, right? Uh, and it's it's uh, the, the dark hold, which is the words of the elder gods, which give people power, which are indelibly associated with certain people as well. So for those of for those of you that are listening, we are getting to Sidorak, I promise. But <laughs> yes, but there is this wider pantheon that's worthy of really fascinating exploration. And uh, like my brain is firing on all cylinders now as we just start to delve in. So let's jump into this character. Are we OK to move forward with the juggernaut part of the story? I'm good to move forward. Yeah. So as a quick recap, Kane Marco uh, is a boy raised by a very violent father, Kurt Marco. We know that he was abusive. Uh, Kane's mom died tragically. Uh, Kurt Marco worked uh, on the Black Womb Project at Alamogordo in New Mexico. That's a whole different story. And he became associated with Brian Xavier, the father of Charles, who died uh, in some sort of accident. Uh, Kurt then woos Sharon Xavier, who is Charles's mother, and ends up marrying her. So Kane Marco is this kind of bully, redheaded uh, kid who's always wanting his dad's attention. He's uh, <laughs> his interactions with uh, baby Charles, who is uh, the blonde, blue-eyed kid. I mean, they're both orphans uh, by the end of this story, but. 
the blonde blue-eyed kid who also has telepathic powers. The first time Cade meets Charles, he just slaps him across the face. There's a bunch of stories told about their, them growing up together and just never getting along. They're always in competition. And Kane is very much meant to be uh, portrayed as the bully, the Flash Thompson to Charles Xavier's Peter Parker. Uh, but we have a lot of heart added to him over the years. So in a flashback in 1965, X-Men 12 and 13, which is kind of Stan and Jack's first really big hit on the title. They have three or four runs in the early X-Men that are just great. And Juggernaut's one of their really great stories. Uh, we see Juggernaut, who's attacking the mansion of Charles Xavier. He is this unstoppable threat. We see that word unstoppable placed before Juggernaut over and over across the decades. Uh, we see a flashback to the Korean War, which now because of the sliding time kale is called the Sian Kong conflict, which is a fictional uh, conflict in Marvel that they've used to try to patch up the time scale. Uh, Kane Marco is a soldier. He abandons the war effort and rushes toward this old temple. And of course, Charles Xavier is in the same unit. He runs after Kane and warns him. Uh, so we're, we're, we're kind of meant to see Kane as a coward right from the beginning. He's running away from war, he's deserting and he's running into an old temple. And uh, Charles Xavier, who is a telepath, shouts after him, it's the sacred lost temple of Sidorak. Legends have warned of it for centuries. Cain uh, rushes inside and he finds a, a crimson gem and he grasps it and he holds it up into the air. And he says, uh, whosoever touches this gem shall possess the power of the crimson bands of Sidorak. Henceforth, you who read these words shall become forevermore a human juggernaut. And Kane is immediately transformed into this massive version of himself, covered in crimson armor. Uh, but the transformation coincides with enemy fire also hitting the temple, which causes it to collapse on Kane, who remains stuck there for years, possibly decades, slowly digging himself out, realizes over time he doesn't have any need to eat or drink any longer. And in X-Men 12, 13, he just stomps toward the mansion because he wants revenge. We're not going to talk a lot about Juggernaut's motivation specifically in this podcast. We're going to focus more on his connection with Sidorak. But these are key moments that we're going to touch on again and again and again. Juggernaut grabs the arcane, grabs the gem and becomes Juggernaut. The temple collapses on him and he's stuck there for years. Uh, Hussein, let me hear some of your thoughts and interpretations on this first introduction of the Crimson Gem and the first appearance of Juggernaut. I... I, you know, I don't know what to do with this because I'm so, you know, I went back and read this after I thought a lot about Kane uh, and what, who he was and what his relationship was. Um, but I think for me, Sidorak here is who, 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 it's, it's he's, it, the connection is to the Crimson Bands of Sidorak, right? So my first thought is, uh, again, anachronistically, Doctor Strange. And it doesn't feel like, Sidorak, that is, is really a character at this point. It feels like, and this is where I think for me the confusion comes up, is this is a, a space, uh, um, a locale rather than a, uh, an individual uh, or, a, or a character, right? Again, we, we don't know what Sidorak's actual existence, nature is. Uh, and so very, very specifically using the words, whosoever touches this gem shall possess the power of the crimson bands of Sidorak. Sidorak, yeah. and then become a juggernaut is what it says so it's not it's not Sidorak possessing Kane it's not Kane even drawing on his energy so much as he's using the power of the crimson bands themselves which in Doctor Strange we've seen are these impenetrable circles or rings that that imprison people 
And then he's surrounded by this very bright crimson armor that makes him look a little like a potato. <laughs> uh, Juggernaut but, is initially, he's initially able to kind of create this force field around him that it's like an energy field that can repel people. There's another appearance where he tosses like energy globules at people, but mostly he's just like, he's grown and grown over the years. He's just this massive guy who you can't affect him unless you get his helmet off. Then he's vulnerable to telepathy, but he just stomps through shit. He is determined. And it's very much Kane's characteristics that are behind the power more than Sidorak's. But we'll learn over the years that Sidorak is influencing Kane more than we thought. And we'll get to those stories later. But right. initially, it's just the god that powered the guy. That If anyone else had grabbed this gem, they would have had the power instead. Yeah, but I think I think that that statement that um, you know whoever whosoever holds this gem will, will hold the power of the Crimson Bands of Sidorak doesn't indicate to me that Sidorak is a person, right? It's this sort of amorphous realm or a or character of his own right. Um, I am fascinated, and, and I, I, I just speaking of characters of their time, right? Obviously, they're talking about the Korean War. We're in Southeast Asia, maybe East Asia when this happens. Uh, I'm not quite sure what the theater of conflict is where uh, Kane is is running away from, but then takes on this very Indic name of uh, the Juggernaut, right? Which comes out of this temple of this place in India called Jagannath, which is this the moving temple of Jagannath, which is a sort of uh, what is it unstoppable sort of thing that sort of rolls and, and meets people. Um, and I know you did some uh, some philology, did some background. You know, what's the origin of this word and where did it come from? Uh, but for me, it's interesting that it's sort of this pan-Asian connection that's happening here with Sidorak. Well, uh, the white writers at Marvel in the 60s were not great at distinguishing between any difference between Japanese, Korean, Chinese, or Hindu cultures, right? Like they all kind of just meld together, right. uh, which is which is problematic in its own way in these portrayals. But I do think it's specifically labeled as Korea. Uh, the, the Jagannath, if I'm saying that correctly, from what I could find, it's it's kind of the word the word Jagannath or Juggernaut is meant to be like an unstoppable barrier or force. Right. Uh, it's from Hindu religions. Uh, the the word is Sanskrit. It's a combination of Jagat, which means world, and uh, Nafa, which means lord. So world lord, and they would build these huge weapons or units that they could use in combat uh kind of designed around images of these hindu god this hindu god and they would uh, call them juggernauts or juggernaut in the way that we phrase it and they would just kind of steamroll toward things it was like this unstoppable force in battle do i have kind of that interpretation correctly i am not an expert in this area of religious studies yeah yeah it works it works for us i mean the thing is it's there's so many words that come into english right from so many different languages um but this is this is one of the great ones that comes in juggernaut that uh yeah i i think it's just so much fun to see how it gets picked up and used in in ways you know most people probably don't know the origin of the word juggernaut so you know I, i'm willing to let the marvel writers off the hook for sort of merging asian uh cultures on this one because it is an english word but really just for me knowing where it is it's fun to think about this is a lot of people that are being collapsed. A lot of cultures that are being collapsed into this one little figure, this one little, you know, three panels on the on the page. Well, it's almost like the writers, I think a lot of them were well-read or well-traveled and they had these certain ideas for characters they could create. We have the, we have the god Kukul Khan, uh, 
who the, the character El Tigre picks up his amulet and suddenly he's channeling the powers of Kukul Khan. Frankly, even Thor's hammer at the beginning, Donald, Donald Blake picks up the hammer that says, whosoever holds this hammer shall possess the power of Thor, right? If they be worthy. And so there, there's these kind of themes interwoven where you find the artifact that belongs to the god and then you get that god's powers. But Kane has gone on to become one of the most beloved uh, villains in X-Men history. I would say top 10 along with Magneto, Apocalypse, Mr. Sinister, Mystique, right? Like he's he's beloved. He's appeared hundreds of times. He's usually the villain, but not always. People like to try to work with him. But he's the guy that smashes smashes shit down. Like he, that's what people love yeah. about him. He just stomps through everything. Uh, he's got this incredible super strength uh, and he's full of rage. A lot of characters, when they don't believe in themselves very much, they will lose their power. Gladiator in the Shi'ar space is an example of that. But that's not Juggernaut. Like he's just strong anyway. But he yeah. seems to be able to manifest this armor at will. The only time his power comes into question is when Sidorak is withdrawing his power for some reason. And we'll get uh, we'll get that off. But basically, the only way to defeat this guy, Juggernaut, is you either get his helmet off and zap him with telepathic powers, or you bury him in some sort of rubble or concrete. You toss him into another dimension. Another dimension, uh, yeah. And uh, he's trapped there until he can find a way back, which of course he always does. But he's a great character. <laughs> he's a ton of fun. One of my favorite moments with Juggernaut, and again, I know we're gonna get back. To, we have to get back to Sidorak, but but one of my favorite moments with Juggernaut that I remember from when I first started reading comics was uh, the immovable the immovable blob meets the unstoppable Juggernaut, and I thought, oh, this is like basic physics. That was so much fun. They left this massive, massive crater. Can't even remember the storyline. I love Blob, and I feel like he's so much more powerful than people give him credit for. But I feel like Juggernaut would kick his ass. <laughs> uh, uh, Blob has a lot of vulnerabilities that Kane often does not. Uh, so uh, in Juggernaut's second appearance, we're in X-Men 32-33. We see Juggernaut banished for the first time into another dimension. Roy Thomas and Werner Roth uh, send him into the Crimson Cosmos. And this is kind of where we get some backstory on Sidorak for the first time. There's a flashback who, where the Ancient One, who was then Earth's Sorcerer Supreme, uh, so before Doctor Strange, this is the guy who trained Strange, he enters the temple in uh, Chosan, which I, again, I am not an expert here, but that's the ancient name for Korea, as far as I understand it. Is that accurate? <laughs> that's, that's I'm taking your word for that one. So they're in Chosan. This is uh, hundreds of years ago. And uh, the ancient one has identified the ruby of the crimson bands, which I think is the crimson gem of Sidorak with a different name. Uh, he gets attacked, uh, uh, the ancient one, by uh, a green mystic alien guy, who kind of looks like the little the claw guys from uh from Toy Story the little alien dudes? Yeah. Uh, uh, his name is Zorak X O R A K, and he explains that quote. This is from the comic. When Sidorak was banished from this world, meaning Earth, he did create me Zorak to be the guardian of this his sacred temple. So we we get a little backstory here. It looks like Sidorak was once on Earth. He's been banished and he's now created Zorak to guard his temple in Chosan, which will eventually become Korea. The Ancient One re realizes that many over the years have sought out the Crimson Gem. It's become kind of a legend. If you can find it, then you get this power. Uh, but Zorak has scared everyone away. Now, famously, and we interviewed uh, Roy Thomas about this briefly 
Zorak uh, was drawn on the cover as this big scary green guy and the comics code authority was like that's too scary so they made they made them replace Zorak with ju the juggernaut so there's a cover of like giant juggernaut like the x-men are teeny tiny and that was meant to be Zorak on the cover you can find the original pencils online if you look for it uh, in this same battle, the Ancient One says, so you are the reason why no man has ever dared the curse of the Juggernaut. Legend tells of many who have made the long journey to this place, but of none who have e'er returned. Zorak says, I, for who, whosoever enters the temple of Sidorak, him I destroy. The Ancient One then in this flashback has banished Zorak to the Crimson Cosmos, which is described as the endless universe inside the gem itself. So we're meant to believe this entire entity's realm is within the Crimson Gem. Uh, and that's why the gem has been unprotected for years. So before I continue with this crazy story, say, do you have comments on uh, Zorak or the, uh, the idea that Sidorak was banished into this realm which exists within this gem? I, well, plot-wise, I'm, I'm very confused. I have to be honest with you. Sidorak is we've banished. We've only just begun. Uh, we've already just begun. Sidorak is banished to the gem, and then he creates a guardian to make sure nobody can free him from the gem or to protect the gem from being in contact with somebody, even though he's looking for a juggernaut and Zorak is scaring everybody away. And then the ancient one comes and says, Yes, let's create a juggernaut. Let me banish Zorak. And it feels like this is just everybody acting against any interests. Yeah, if the Ancient One is banishing <laughs> Zorak, that's leaving the gem free for people to find, which would then give Sidorak influence over the mortal realm. I can almost see Sidorak creating Zorak to try, like, people have to prove themselves to get the gem. They got to find a way past this guy. Uh, but yeah, right. it does seem it does seem counterintuitive for sure. Right. It seems like Zorak took his role. I can, I can understand Sidorak, as you said, prove you're worthy, sort of like Mjolnir, like prove you're, you're worthy to... Uh... Uh, to get the gem, but Zorak seems to have taken a step further, and then the Ancient One's response is, no, we really need some more evil in the world, let me get rid of you. <laughs> um, uh, you know, but also I feel like the Ancient One is also like Professor X, like there's no thought of consequences, let me just do what feels good at the moment, and we'll, you know, screw the rest. So what we're to understand Sidorak by this point, and we're still in the, the mid-60s, is Sidorak was once on Earth, he was banished somehow into another realm, and then this realm exists within the Crimson Gem. And now there's this guardian of his temple and the gem. But now Zorak has also been banished to inside of the gem by the Ancient One. So we, we are giving a little backstory to why this gem was unprotected when Kane found it in the original story. So in this story, the X-Men battle juggernaut, Doctor Strange uh, transports Cyclops and Marvel Girl to Korea and he's sending them to find the Crimson Gem itself because Juggernaut is super powerful. And if they can find the gem, uh, then maybe they can use it to stop him somehow. Uh, they find a red statue of Sidorak that looks so weird. It looks almost a little like Zorak itself, except it's red. Uh, they use that to enter the Crimson Cosmos uh, with a spell from Doctor Strange that they channel. And they are immediately confronted by Zorak, who says again that he's a creation of Sidorak. He throws something called the Scarlet Circles of Doom at the mutants. <laughs> and they only want to retrieve the prototype of the Crimson Gem so that they can defeat Juggernaut. So this is a pretty ballsy story, but it doesn't tie together well. Cyclops and Jean are literally in the realm of this other god using a spell from Doctor Strange. Uh, the stakes feel pretty high. We did, if you go back to the podcast, we did this issue review with Jordan White, who was like, this is nonsense. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. 
Uh, so Zorak then in the Crimson Cosmos grows up to giant size and he ensnares the mutants with these crimson tentacles. Then he tries to eat them. In the end, Jean tosses her watch and it touches him and it ages him to dust. And they made sure to have her like not touch the watch to him directly because they didn't want Jean to be a murderer. But the watch hits him and this passage of time somehow kills Zorak who has literally never appeared again. Uh, Scott and then Jen then grab the prototype of the Crimson Gem, return to Earth, and they use the gem to weaken Juggernaut. Juggernaut then grabs the gem and it transports him inside the gem into the Crimson Cosmos, and he's supposed to stay trapped there. That's how this story ends. Uh, while he was trapped there, he shows up a couple times wielding the energies of the Crimson Cosmos. He comes back to Earth. There's one bizarre story uh, in Amazing Adventures with the Beast of all places. Uh, where he is like aging weirdly he turns into like an old man but then goes back into the cosmos and he's like a normal adult again so we're seeing that the laws or principles of the crimson cosmos do not work the same that they do on earth but we just added a ton of weird shit with this story based on how Sidorak and the crimson cosmos work uh, we've still only seen Sidorak in the form of this statue uh, that uh, that is used. And then we very much get the idea that Juggernaut touched the gem, it powered him into the Juggernaut, and then he left the gem behind. The X-Men were able to then go use it. So other people could supposedly touch the gem and also become versions of Juggernaut. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Tell well, me your thoughts on this crazy story. Well, I, so did anybody, nobody else became the Juggernaut, right? I mean, not at this point. They, they touched, right? I, yeah, later on we get it, right? But at this point, I think it's, Scott and Jean go to the Crimson, uh, go to the Crimson Gem, and then use that to go to the Crimson Cosmos to get the Ur Crimson Gem, to take that out of the Crimson Cosmos through the Crimson Gem to go to Juggernaut to put him through the Ur Crimson Gem, to put him in the real Crimson Gem to put him <laughs> in the Crimson Cosmos. I think that's the flow. Uh, all I know is there's a lot of red there. There is a lot of crimson in this story. Absolutely. It's a it's a ton of crimson. It's a whole cosmos of crimson. <laughs> it's a whole cosmos of crimson. And it's like, okay, I, I feel like there could have been less convoluted ways, especially if you're just throwing a watch at Zorak to make him disappear through time. I feel like if you're going to use that as your deus ex machina, you could have made this whole crimson gem thing a little bit simpler as well. I think the most important parts of this story, we do see the Crimson Gem recognized as an artifact that's very powerful. We see the Crimson Cosmos bulk dwells within the gem. We see Sidorak creating a garden guardian. We also see the Ancient One involved, which kind of ties into the Doctor Strange mythos of it all a little bit. Uh, but it's a pretty bold story that doesn't have a lot of sense made. Uh, but the idea of Sidorak as an entity that was worshipped and then banished from Earth is also really heavily influencing this story, too. So we'll pick up on those threads. Uh, any comments on that before we keep moving forward? You know, for me, that there's so much you can do. And I, and I love these little stories like this otherworldly being, whether it's from a parallel dimension, from outer space, whatever, has come to Earth. People start worshipping that, that character, that individual. And then, you know, a bigger entity comes along and people stop forgetting, you know, whether it's Sidorak or, or Thor and they get displaced and all of a sudden people are finding them again, right? So you can have the Donald Blake finds Mjolnir and becomes cool Thor and people are discovering Sidorak and he's just like bitter for being neglected for thousands of years. And I'm like, 
those are really cool premises, right? Without elevating people, like they were gods because was it Sagan, right? That uh, magic is just us, right? Was that Sagan who said that? Uh, say the quote again. Uh, magic is just science we don't understand yet. I don't know if that was Sagan. I don't know. <laughs> All right, it's a, I, but it's a I, great, I will make but sure it's a I great look that quote. Up. I'm pretty sure Iron Man has said it a time or two. <laughs> Yeah, but we we know uh, Tony Stark's just a hack, you know, just taking other people's ideas and profiting off them. He's he's the Edison to people's Tesla. <laughs> uh, so for many many years, Juggernaut becomes the misunderstood criminal. Uh, we we review in the Juggernaut trial. If you haven't heard it, go back and listen. So many of his crimes are him just trying to get some sort of present for Black Tom or get Black Tom out of jail. They're crime husbands. Uh, Claremont loves Juggernaut. He brings him into the books multiple times. Uh, he's a great character. In 1985, in the final issue of Marvel Team Up, so this is uh, 20 years later-ish, Louise Simonson tells a story about Juggernaut going back to the Korean temple, which is still in rubble, and he digs down to get the Crimson Gem, which apparently has been left there, which is just like buried in the wreckage. And Black Tom Cassidy touches it because Juggernaut wants him to feel powerful. It's like Black Tom's birthday. <laughs> he brings him the Crimson Gem and Black Tom touches the gem and the power of Juggernaut splits in between the two men, which is the only time we ever see this happen. Uh, but then, I don't know, the end of this story, Juggernaut grabs the gem and throws it into space. He fights the Spider-Man and X-Men, but now the gem is in orbit. So we see, we see super powerful Black Tom for a minute, uh, and then the gem is in orbit. Uh, any thoughts on that Marvel team-up story? So before getting to the Marvel team-up story, it is Arthur C. Clarke who said magic is science oh, we don't understand yet. Thank you. Not second. So I, I just, I just, it was going to bug me, and I was like, I need to get it on air. Um, is Black Tom plant Black Tom at this point? Not at this point. He's not. No, no, no. Not until, has, not until around 93 in the X-Force stories. Yeah, this is this is significantly earlier. That's what I thought. Um, I, you know, I think it just goes to to prove that that Black Tom and uh, Kane Marco have a relationship. Uh, that is just these are all the hints. And and if Weezy's written it, if Louis Simonson has written it, it is now canon. They have a deep emotional bond that they can share all their powers together. So I'm I'm all for it. During the trial, I think it's Anthony Oliveira who's like, oh my God, all of his crimes are just, he's trying to do something nice for his husband. That's, <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's not until 1992 when we get a really dense Sidorak story for the first time. And this is another Roy Thomas story. And he, uh, so he's, he's writing this 30 years after he introduced uh, or told some original, because he just wrote the Zorak story we talked about. Right, we're we're in a doctor. Uh, and I'm sorry, I gotta say, I didn't realize Roy was writing this late, like ninety. And I guess for me, that's only thirty years ago. But that's like when I was reading this stuff, you know. Roy put out a book last month, and he's in his eighties. He's still writing, but yeah, he did a lot of shit with his wife Dan in the in the uh, in the nineties. He did West Coast Avengers. He did Doctor Strange. Uh, he actually has a pretty long uh, vetoes that people don't know. Um, Doctor Strange Sorcerer Supreme number 44, we see uh, Sidorak is having a moment of vulnerability and he pulls Doctor Strange into the Crimson Cosmos. This also involves the character Nova, who is the female uh, Frankie Ray, uh, the fire girl who is like the Herald of Galactus from the Fantastic Four. Uh, Sidorak here appears as like a crimson skinned Genghis Khan, for lack of better phrasing. He, he looks like 
a guy in like Genghis Khan like armor, but his skin is pink, his armor is red. He's apparently created a bunch of pink elves to worship him. And now he fancies Nova. He wants her to become his high priestess. Uh, I'll, I'll pause before we even continue. I'm almost wondering if this is like an aspect of Sidorak that is obsessed with the mortal ways of viewing gods from like ancient times. He wants to be mm -hmm. like the guy in the palace with people worshiping and bringing him gifts. So he wants Nova to be his high priestess and Doctor Strange to be his priest. No one ages there, he says. They can live forever with him. Uh, which makes you go back to the watch that killed Zorak <laughs> or Juggernaut turning into an old man, but then returning to, I don't know. Anyway, no one ages apparently. Doctor Strange convinces Sidorak to let him go because he makes Sidorak aware that I've been using your name in spells for a whole bunch of years. So I've been trying to spread your fame across Earth. So he's appealing to Sidorak's ego. And Sidorak seems largely unaware of this, which is an interesting thing. So all these spells we were talking about before. But Strange uh, summons Juggernaut into the realm. Juggernaut then uh, grabs the mystic ruby that is on Sidorak's uh, forehead. It's like a different version of the Crimson Gem. And uh, uh, he briefly takes Sidorak's power. Sidorak uh, quickly revives. Doctor Strange puts the ruby back. And he seizes control of Juggernaut. And he says... The fool, I and the cosmos that is myself have always been the ultimate source of his power, meaning Juggernaut's power. When by sheer rage he briefly defeated me just now, uh, he was in truth merely enfeebling himself. What good to grasp the ruby when he had dammed up the fountain from which its energy flowed? It's almost as if he thought I was truly the overly humanoid form I wear from time to time. So we see Sidorak kind of saying, I'm taking on a mortal form. When Juggernaut attacked me just now to seize the ruby, he's really just seizing the power that already powers him. So he's kind of canceling himself out in a weird way. Uh, Doctor Strange says, will you henceforth deny Marco your power, Scarlet One? And Sidorak says, why should I? What care I what occurs outside my realm so long as my fame ever grows? Fame is spread by evil as well as by good, wizard, and both are the same to Sidorak. But you all have disturbed my contemplation of self long enough. Out you go, each to your own lesser spheres. And he tosses them all out of the realm. So quick recap. Sidorak has created elves to worship him. He's taken on a mortal form, which is not something he always does. He summons Nova and Doctor Strange to worship at his side. Juggernaut comes, and eventually in the end, he's Sidorak's like, never mind, all of you, go go home. Uh, that's kind of uh, the story we get here. Tell me your thoughts on this crazy Doctor Strange story. It's nuts. Again, why? Right? I mean, if Sidorak wants to be worshipped and he can create little pink elves to worship him, why does he need a Juggernaut or a Doctor Strange going out and shouting his name from the rooftops? Uh, so when when he says just to comment on that when he says so long as my fame ever grows fame is spread by evil and good both right. they're both the same to me this again I'm, I'm kind of led to believe that this like worship or being in the thoughts of mortals makes him more powerful uh that's kind of his motivation he wants attention which, to be to be which makes sense powerful. makes total sense to me but then why the pink elves who are worshiping him right like that's 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 where it starts stripping me up is the pink elves but was, i love he was lonely the same <laughs> <laughs> I I I love this line that that uh, you quoted. Fame is spread by evil as well as by good. 
because for me that's a very and I remember being exposed to to Nietzsche through uh, through the X Men, uh, so this really resonates with me, right? But this is like Sidorak beyond good and evil. He's like, no, no, I got a job to do. My job is to be worshipped. It doesn't matter whether good people get me worshippers or bad people get me worshippers. People just need to know how who I am so I can become the best me I can be. He's uh he he's just lonely. He just wants some company. He just yeah. <laughs> It's an interesting story, and we are often, again, in Marvel, shown these stories of godlike entities who have very human characteristics or fallibilities underneath all that. Odin, Odin is super powerful with the Odin Force, but he's also just like the jealous dad who wants a lot of attention, and he has to teach everybody a lesson. And I think we get that type of stories, even with characters like Galactus or the Sentinels often, where we see these very human emotions underneath it all. Uh, so when you paint Sidorak in this like mortal form, even though we know he's more than what is being shown here, uh, it's it, it kind of adds some like uh, very weak fallibilities underneath it all. Did you read uh, Jason Aaron's run on Thor that involves Gore the God Butcher? It was oh, recently oh, yeah. Of and this is very much that. Gore is a character who feels forsaken by his God and then realizes his God is actually just this selfish, self-involved, narcissistic being. And he just fucking kills him. And then he goes on a quest to kill all gods because they influence so much of what's underneath them and they're fallible, just like the rest of us. Any thoughts on that? I I thought that Gore storyline was just um, amazing. Just amazing. And I think this is where you get the idea of how coming back to religion, how people understand religion, how they rail against God and how, how do people respond to that? How do you understand that? You know, Gore as the God killer is, and, and I, to be honest, I haven't seen Love and Thunder yet. So I'm really only talking about the, the comic version. The comic, so, the comic is better than the movie. Yeah. I, I mean, always, right. The, the, the book is always better than the movie. Uh, but the, you know, he's so, complex he seems sort of monomaniacal but he's really so complex and he he's never wavering right like he doesn't he doesn't bring in new information he doesn't change like he really is obsessed but there's a complexity that obsession that i really like because you see all these other people reacting to what gore is doing and trying to understand what their relationship to god is like or gods are like um i just i just loved it and for me that's how you start thinking about religion in more complex ways that I think Sidorak doesn't quite, still isn't quite doing for me. Well, and another another thing that's brilliant, and Jason Aaron's brilliant. I hope to interview him one day. I think he's phenomenal. Uh, he, uh, he explores the concept of what it means to be worthy. You can't wield Thor's power unless right. you are worthy. And does worthy mean that you have all the attention? Does worthy mean that you are benevolent and kind? Does worthy mean that you wipe out the population of the planet with a flood because people didn't like what you had to say and they're sinning, quote unquote. Uh, worthy can mean so many things and Thor loses his powers because he's reckoning with the mortal understanding of what it means to be worthy. The, the parallel here then being what makes Cain a good avatar for Sidorak? When he is spreading uh, Sidorak's name when Sidorak's name is on people's tongues because Cain is stomping all over people he's smashing people he's scaring people he's slaughtering people and then Sidorak has the attention and that's what he wants he wants to be known on the mortal earth 
for whatever reason, that's what tends to give him power. So let me ask you, Chad, I think, yes, I think that's Sidorak's goal. But if Juggernaut is on a rampage, are you thinking, oh, Sidorak is doing this? Or are you thinking, screw Juggernaut, right? Like, in other words, how much is Juggernaut's rampage actually bringing attention to Sidorak? So it seems to be, and we're going to get into the Juggernaut stuff coming up, because the rest of our conversation is about Juggernaut and Sidorak. Because Kane's story over the last 30 years has been all about him trying to stay powerful without being evil, frankly, if we're mm. oversimplifying. So yeah. let me let me pause that question for just a second. Let's go into the next story. And did you read X-Men Unlimited 12? Did you have a chance? Um, no, I didn't think this so, one. Okay, so let me summarize this one. This is this is complicated and it's you have to read it. It's one of those stories you have to read three or four times to kind of see what's going on. There's a lot happening. So 1996, John Francis Moore, X-Men Unlimited number 12. It's a big maxi issue. Onslaught has severed. So Professor X and Magneto had a rage baby. <laughs> it's the psychic entity Onslaught. And the first thing Onslaught does is rip the Crimson Gem out of Juggernaut and like punch him, like bitch slap him across the country. And he lands like across the continent. That's how Onslaught begins for those of you who go back and read. So this is the story that's kind of uh, exploring what happened here. The Crimson Gem has been ripped from Onslaught, or excuse me, from Juggernaut, and Doctor Strange comes to investigate. And he thinks, quote, does Onslaught understand the dire consequences of severing Marco from the gem? The ruby contains a corrupted aspect of the other dimensional entity known as Sidorak, which when unleashed centuries ago, left a path of death and destruction across the Asian continent. Okay, so let's pause. We have references earlier in continuity of Sidorak having once uh, ruled Earth or had some sort of following on Earth, and then he mm -hmm. was banished. And then he puts his gem in the temple with Zorak to guard it, right? Now we have the mythos being changed a little bit. Again, I'm going to read this part. The ruby contains a corrupted aspect of the yeah. other dimensional entity known as Sidorak, which when unleashed centuries ago left a path of death and destruction across the Asian continent. So we have the idea that this gem has previously been released and the fact that a lot of people died in its name previously. We also have this idea that it's a corrupted aspect of Sidorak powering this gem, which means there could be a lot more to Sidorak. So before I continue with this crazy story, do you have thoughts on Dr. Strange's words here? So for me, the, the issue with the corrupted aspect of Sidorak is we've gone into the Crimson Cosmos. We've met Sidorak with his pink dancing elves at this point. Uh, this is where I say, like, I cannot square Sidorak's story up until this point, is that if you tell me the Crimson Gem is a corrupted aspect of Sidorak and that we meet a Sidorak who's like, yeah, I'm sorry about this. Somebody cut off a chunk and, you know, it's just a little bit rotten and that's what the Juggernaut is stepping into. Okay, but we we consistently see Sidorak saying, no, 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 this is me. This is me. This is me. Like, he's not... And I understand there's retconning and, and all that, but this doesn't get picked up again later, as far as I can tell either. Like, Sidorak is still asking for the same things. I think we also, uh, almost need to view Sidorak. I divided the Christian God up into three different aspects earlier. I think we almost have to divide Sidorak up. He's the guy that doesn't give a shit about Earth. He's the guy that's obsessed with having power on Earth. But he's also a guy that's obsessed with rage and control. 
Uh, he wants bloody, you know, wars in his name uh, at the same time. So th there's there's interesting things here. So Onslaught in this story has literally trapped Juggernaut within the gem. And there's like images of Juggernaut like trapped inside of the gem, like pounding to be released. But we've also had reference to the Crimson Cosmos being within the gem. It's uh, it's both within the gem and without the gem. God dwells in each of us and is also everything, right? <laughs> right. So Cain is stuck in the gem. There's this place of like molten fire that seems to burn him. I'm not going to get a lot into these characters because it's a whole thing that we don't need to go into regarding the uh, oh, what's the eye tattoo that uh, the Crimson Dawn that that uh, Psylocke and Archangel and Spiral went through the Crimson Dawn. That's a whole nother conversation. But there could be connections between the Crimson Dawn and the Crimson Cosmos very easily put into place. But we have this character who's this little wizard named Gomer the Ancient. He has entered the gem and he, he, he helps Cain fight the demoness Spite, who I believe is the daughter of the demon Despair. That's a whole different episode as well. Cain uh, is considering giving into the gem again because he wants the power back. And Gomer, the ancient, this little wizard guy, prophesies, quote, embrace the power of the juggernaut again, and you'll never be free of its curse. Yes, your enemies will fall before you, but so will your friends and lovers. The need to destroy will overwhelm you until your life becomes one unending, unstoppable rampage. And in the end, the only thing you, you'll have to lord over is the dead. So this is a big, significant character change for Cain. He's been using this power for a long time. It's almost as though Onslaught severing the gem is a blessing in disguise. He's stuck. Uh, Gomer is trying to get Kane to not give in to the gem again. Uh, thoughts on that before I continue? I'm not done with this issue yet. I. So coming back to why he's in the gem is that Juggernaut realizes who Onslaught is because in, in the story arc, nobody knows who Onslaught is. They just know Onslaught is coming. Correct. And they don't realize it's the, it's the rage baby. <laughs> if we're sticking with rage, <laughs> oh, uh, the rage, rage baby, baby. Between, uh, <laughs> Professor X and Magneto. Um, right. And I, so Kane is trying to do a good thing and warn the X-Men, which is when he gets picked up by Onslaught. If I remember the story arc correctly. Mm -hmm. um, right. So, Kane's trying to do a good thing and he gets separated from the gem. And so I think it's a really, for Kane, it's a really interesting and a transitional moment, right? Is does he need to do the good thing to become the juggernaut again because they need him in that form? Or does he do the good thing to stay separate from the gem because he doesn't, you know, the juggernaut is a destructive force. And so I think it's a great hook and i love the fact that they brought in a uh, gomer the ancient and they brought in spite because uh, there was a great one shot with juggernaut spite and despair yes that was really good which gets into some of this what is the type of person juggernaut wants to be and and so or or kane what's the type of person kane wants to be and uh right there he's in a little drinking tent it's a little nowhere town and they get into this big fight and i you know so i love that these are the characters who are coming in to to have this moment with him i believe that story is in like juggernaut number one he has like a one shot and i think that's where that think, story yeah. was i think you're right i think it's, i think it is a one shot yeah. so we're not going to delve into that a ton because sidorak's not a super big part of that story it's more a story about who kane is yeah it's juggernaut number one which is told in uh 1997 by joe kelly uh that's where we get the spite story so anyway there's oh so there's... that's actually after this 
that is after this. It continues oh, from this where we see Spite more. Uh, and oh. when I when I researched for this episode, I focused on Sidorex specifically. So I did not read that one again. I haven't read it since. Uh, okay, so Spite first shows up in X-Men Unlimited 12, which is this story. Which is this episode. And then they pick up the Spite story in the Juggernaut one shot. Oh, uh, okay. I thought this was a callback to that one. Okay, so I had the timeline. I think it's, I think okay. it's the opposite. But again, I'd have to go back and reread both in a row to make sense of it both but to 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 summarize this one and yes it gets more complicated spite who again is this demon lady explains to kane some of gomer's history so gomer gomer the ancient she says centuries ago a group of heretic monks sought to harness the power of the multi multi-dimensional deity sidorak Unfortunately, they failed, releasing only Sidorak's most destructive aspect upon the Earth. So again, we get this idea that it's an aspect of Sidorak, which is on the Earth. So heretic monks harness the power, they release his rage version on Earth. Uh, continuing with the quote, she says, Power incarnate, the entity destroyed the monks and then every village in its path. Not until two novice magicians joined forces was this manifestation of Sidorak stopped. One was Gomer the Impetuous, apprenticed to one of the most disreputable conjurers on the continent. And the other was his grim-faced rival, Tar. That's not a character we're going to talk about today, but look him up if you want. T-A-R Tar, who was an initiate of the Ebon Vein. Through more luck than skill, they contained the elemental Sidorak in a mystic ruby. Their victory was incomplete for Sidorak cursed his ruby prison, swearing that any who touched the gem would become a juggernaut of destruction, a vessel for his unearthly power. Neither Gomor nor Tar trusted the other to guard the ruby, each believing his partner would succumb to the lure of such phenomenal power. After much argument, they agreed to bury the gem in a temple recessed in a cave and seal the entrance under a mountain of rocks, unaware that hundreds of years later, earthquakes, earthquakes would reopen the cave for you to find the gem and become the juggernaut. Okay, so this is all according to Spite, but she's giving us a pretty detailed history that we then have to try to stack up with what's come before. We knew before Sidorak ruled on Earth, at least somewhat, and that he was banished. So this actually kind of fits. We learned that some heretic monks, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on what heretic monks are, summoned this aspect, this rage aspect of Sidorak, he then destroyed a whole bunch of shit and people on the planet before he was banished into the gem, which is also the Crimson Cosmos, by these entities. So we get the idea that Sidorak represents something a lot more than just his rage, but this aspect of him has been placed within the ruby. And then these two novice magicians didn't trust themselves, so they buried it in the temple. If we're stacking up with the previous continuity, Sidorak ruled on Earth. He wanted to maintain some power. He created Zorak to guard his temple, but he also wants a juggernaut to spread his name. And uh, just dot, dot, dot. We're going to have two major reinterpretations of this story by the time we're done. <laughs> so re listeners, stick with us. Right. Uh, let me hear your thoughts on this the same. Spite's written out Zorak from the whole history. There's no Zorak in Spite's version. And you, you can't yeah. squeeze in a Zorak. I think, um, I, I think you have to squeeze in Zorak. You have to layer it on top of each other in order to make it work. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like Spite's writing him out. I think we're 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 saying he just never existed because that watch thing was just such a dodge. It was just so miserable in terms of explaining how you got rid of Zorak. Better not to have him than to deal with the watch. Um, 
<clears throat> Does this change I, your understanding of Sidorak? This idea of this aspect of him uh, being responsible for all this death and carnage before he's banished within the gem. And that's the power Juggernaut's been using. I, I'm still running into the same issue I had before, which is, okay, so you've got people who are trying to summon Sidorak and you get this uh, uh, aspect of Sidorak that comes down. But, you know, unless you're saying that Sidorak is infinite and therefore will not notice anything taken away from him. We assume Sidorak's like every other being we've run into. If you're cutting off a chunk of Sidorak, he's, I would feel Sidorak would notice uh, and be like, I kind of want that back. We've never, I mean, as far as I know, just going through this, the, the, the sheet uh, or the, the write-up that you did, we don't come to another Sidorak. The only Sidorak we ever meet is this, quote-unquote corrupted aspect mm -hmm. and i feel like but there should be somebody out there looking for that chunk of flesh that's taken out <laughs> so maybe there's a great story remaining to be told but yeah, maybe... we're, we're we're supposed to understand that the Sidorak that dr strange and juggernaut have been interacting with off and on through these years and by the way this is a story told like 40 years after the zorak version right 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 um but we have this like rage aspect that's uh that's all crimson it's it's a strange story but it doesn't hurt the story let me finish this issue quickly and then we'll talk about yeah. what it means and again before you finish the one last thing i will say is oh, that please, spite yeah. is a terribly unreliable narrator in uh i think based on when we see her later on i think she's a terribly unreliable narrator uh so i'm taking a lot of this with with uh with a bucket of salt Spite appears to be a woman of color who's dressed in like very fancy gold bondage gear. It's she's a strange character. I would love to. I love the character Despair and what he does in stories, but Spite, bleh. Yeah. <laughs> she's she's stupid. Okay, so Ancient One's trying to convince Juggernaut Arcane not to grab the the power of the gem again. He's in the gem still. Gomer is there. Spite is trying to tempt him the other direction. Doctor Strange is involved. This is a dense read. Go back and read it like three times if you need to. Spite then leads Juggernaut into the Hall of Sidorak in the Crimson Cosmos. She also calls Sidorak the Destroyer, the Lord of Oblivion, the Master of the Raging Storm. She leads Kane into a massive statue of Juggernaut, who, or Sidorak, I mean, who looks like a massive skeletal Juggernaut carved in crimson. And this is a pretty stunning image, actually. Spite tells Kane that he is, quote, an earthly shadow of Sidorak's magnificence. Except this isn't a statue, because it looks like Sidorak has been imprisoned in this place, and he now actually wants to use Juggernaut's body in order to escape. So the interpretation here is that Sidorak's been trapped in this realm the whole time and that he needs a mortal form or his avatar to get back to Earth. So because Onslaught severed this connection and Cain was brought into the cosmos, even though he's been there before, we now have Sidorak or this aspect of Sidorak trying to take over Cain's body so that he can return to Earth and continue to slaughter people is basically the story we're being told. So uh, <laughs> Spite assumes that Sidorak will give her a reward, but he simply consumes her, which is, again, the, the unthoughtful god. And then Sidorak demands that Cain surrend surrender his body to Sidorak, dead or alive. Quote, no more shall I watch you squander my power in a world denied to me. Give me your pathetic, insignificant little life purpose. Surrender and be a gateway through which I shall return to your dimension. And then as Juggernaut's about to be defeated, Gomer and Tar, these two mystics, sneak into the room 
And they use the aspect of Sidorak's rage and strength in the form of a scorpion tattoo. So this is a marking channeling Sidorak's power uh, that they had taken from the gem and they infuse it onto Juggernaut's skin. So this is an example of Kane using, we, we mentioned at the beginning, the ways to get Sidorak's power. He's not using the gem here. He's using a mystically imprinted tattoo that gives him Sidorak's power and now makes him the equal of Sidorak. Quote, we've infused Kane with the energy we used to bind Sidorak into this ruby because these are the mystics who did it, right? I only hope it'll give Kane the edge he needs to destroy Sidorak. If he doesn't, this ruby won't hold water, let alone Sidorak. Juggernaut then hits Sidorak, splintering him into a thousand pieces. And then Juggernaut is sent back to Earth. So he's in a new version of his costume at the end of this story. He has his power still, but he's no longer connected to Sidorak. So because of this mystics, he has Sidorak's power without Sidorak himself, which is a huge change for the character. So they've redefined mm -hmm. Juggernaut and giving him a new purpose here. He literally fought his god, punched him in the face, and then return to Earth with his own power without being influenced by Sidorak any longer. I know that was a lot of commentary, but tell me your thoughts on this on this story. This part of the story I actually like. I really like the idea of Juggernaut being a manifestation of how Sidorak wants to be embodied, right? Like that skeletal Juggernaut being how Sidorak wants to be. So Kane takes on that form when he's a servant of Sidorak. I, I love that. I love that if you're going to create this mythos of uh, Gomer and uh, Tar accidentally, what, what was it, uh, more by luck than by skill, uh, putting Sidorak away, I love that they're like, yeah, and now we've bound his energy, and here's this little tattoo that's bound his energy that we used to bind his energy, and that's what we're going to give to Kane. I, I, to me, that actually really works. This part of the story actually really works for me, and I like this. Uh, because I think it gives Kane much more agency than he he's been allowed to have before. Well, it's almost as though Kane didn't realize how much this shit with Sidorak was influencing him. Like uh, he's he's given a chance to choose his destiny again. He punches his god in the face and returns with his own power. This is a great Juggernaut story. It's a terrible story for Sidorak because I'm so confused. Right. <laughs> right. But if we understand uh, this version of the story, we, we can meld Zorak in or not. But an aspect of Sidorak ruled on Earth, destroyed a bunch of people, then got trapped in this. And that's this that's the version of him that's trying to escape. So this version has now been shattered into a thousand pieces. Doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Also doesn't mean that the rest of Sidorak, the entity, does not exist. And we have stories still to tell. Uh, Hussein, can we pause for a moment? Uh, refill on coffee, use the restroom, and then recalibrate. Sounds like a plan. Dear listeners, we are we are trudging through this, and I so appreciate your time and talent, Hussein. Uh, we'll pause and be right back. Here we go. So, Hussein, we are back from our break. Let me ask you what you think a heretic monk is. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, you know, I'm thinking, this is 1996. I'm thinking, what's on TV that they're making reference to? Because I'm like... <laughs> Monks of what? Heretics from what? Um, you know, and I, I really, I couldn't figure out what was on TV at the time that was like, or what movies were out there that was sort of influencing what they were writing. 
Uh, I also, the other piece that I just really wanted to emphasize based on uh, the Spite story before we jump in is she gives him these other names. She calls him yeah. uh, the Destroyer, the Lord of Oblivion, the Master of the Raging Storm, which is fascinating. It's showing that there are entities or or people out there that worship Sidorak in some ways. Um, so, okay, we just clarified the very distinct difference between Sidorak, the entity, and then this rage aspect of Sidorak, which seems to have powered Juggernaut. Let's keep going. In uh, Uncanny X-Men 361, this is a story by Steve Siegel in 1998. Uh, Juggernaut seems, or Kane seems to have merged with the Crimson Gem, uh, but he's heard about a second gem that exists, and he goes after mm -hmm. it in Korea. But once he touches the second gem, it takes away his power, uh, we then see a group of X-Men travel with Kane to the island of, I, if I'm pronouncing this correctly, Cheju-do, C-H-E-J-U hyphen D-O, where a temple has been dedicated to Sidorak. So this is the first time, I mean, we see a temple in South Korea, but this is the first time we get multiple temples. It's showing there's like a religion or followers around him. Uh, they've the This cult there plans to use the uh, gem to animate a giant statue and fight people. We don't have to get into it. The X-Men stop them. That's basically all you need to know. And the big change here is we see another temple and we also see a second gem. And then a few months later, Uncanny X-Men 369 and X-Men 88. This is an Alan Davis story, which means gorgeous pencils, but it's a rough one to get through. Kane is overcome by the Crimson Gem and he starts gaining the powers of Sidorak himself. And he's smashing through dimensional barriers, kind of like America Chavez style. He's just punching stuff and like moving through. Uh, he's threatening innocence as he rampages. Ultimately, the Black Tom and Black Tom and the X Men help Kane recontrol his powers again. So he's he's merged with the gem. He's got this tattoo apparently. He's got Sidorak's powers, and we see a couple stories of first a second gem, and second the gem kind of making him uh, powerful or more godlike. Uh, thoughts on these stories? So the first story I'm actually okay with. Uh, it to me that that one that second gem that he touches feels like it was designed to steal his powers so they could use it to animate the statue. So it felt like okay, that's a a later thing. It's not part of the original mythos. The temple coming up, right? If we think that Sidorak has been on Earth and he's been rampaging, and people were like, oh yeah, he'd be a cool person to worship. So we get the second temple. Uh, you know, I'm okay with all of that. That that kind of works for me. But the smashing dimensional barriers, I'm, I don't, I don't know. I don't, what? And I'm glad you brought up America Chavez because I'm like, <laughs> yeah, maybe this is like the prototype, but Kane, really, that's who you're going to go with for the prototype? I mean, ultimately, I think it's a story very quickly told. It's it's fast. And, and, you know, Alan Davis's stuff is pretty, but it doesn't always read super great when he's doing both writing and penciling. I love Alan Davis. Don't get me. Don't get me. Uh, don't confuse that. But it almost seems like uh, this guy using the power of gods and it almost takes him too far. He uh, he's it's almost like he pulled in a little too much power and they have to ground him again in order to make it work. It doesn't have a ton to do with Sidorak. It's more a Crimson Gem story and seeing it used in a different way. Okay, we got to get into the wager of the octessence. This is the story yeah. that gives everything context and does fill in the blanks as long as we allow the idea of this aspect of Sidorak, the rage version of him, is the one that was trapped within the gem. The story we're about to tell seems to be about the entity Sidorak, not the rage aspect. 
and it gives context to everything that we understand about him so far and makes the story richer in my opinion but it is a dense uh story it's kurt Busiek, who i love it's avengers volume three which i love uh before we get into this did you have a chance to look through this uh hussein and any thoughts before I, we even get into it i didn't read every issue but i did spot a few of them uh-huh uh any thoughts on the story before we begin so for me I'm glad that you think that this sort of explains Sidorak, the <laughs> the real Sidorak versus the slower. Because for me, the, this 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 obtessence, I why is Juggernaut? And I know we get a couple of others, but really, Juggernaut's the only one we get. What happens to the other seven, or or once we count everybody else, and what happens to the other five? Uh, you know, sort of figures, the avatars, and it just. I know it's trying to smooth things out, but for me, it's like more and more plot holes with Sidorak with this. Yeah, it's 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 a rough way to try to get it all in. Okay, let's let's talk about this story really quickly. So, uh, Kurt Busiek gives us a story with a couple of other writers. Dan Jurgens is one of them. This crosses over with Thor and Spider Man and Iron Man. Uh, this is a story in 1999. Uh, it's all about Sidorak's origins. So it's called Eighth Day. It results in Juggernaut number one. Uh, so there is a second volume of Juggernaut that comes out during this. That's the culmination of this. So we have the Juggernaut one shot we mentioned before. This is the second time Juggernaut gets his own title. So we learned that 1000 years ago, Sidorak held a meeting with several other dimensional entities. These are also, you know, people that Doctor Strange will draw upon for spells, including Balthok, Ferala, Icon, Kraken, Ragador, Watum, and Valtor. These are all Stanley <laughs> magic entity names for dark magic. They argued these, these entities over who had the greatest power. And then they agreed to what they call the wager of the Octessence. Octessence implies eight beings uh, in this wager. And each one of them uh, imbued an artifact with an element of their power and then placed these items in temples on earth that were then constructed by their followers. So there's eight separate artifacts all connected to a godlike entity. And the idea is that when each of these items is touched, they've been placed in a temple all over earth. When each of these items is touched, they will grant a mortal the power or the, the ability to channel the uh, the godlike essence of whatever entity is powering this artifact. When one is touched, it should trigger a spell. That means all of them will then draw in. So if it takes a year or 10,000 years, they're waiting for one mortal to touch one object. And then that should trigger a spell that makes all of them. Uh... So Sidorax uh, places the crimson gem into the temple in what would later become South Korea. And then the plan was, after these, uh, these eight avatars are chosen, they will then conquer all of humanity in the name of these eight entities. And then there will be a war between them. And whichever aspect or avatar wins will then conquer the planet. The only survivor showing which of these entities is the most powerful. So it's a pretty strong setup. Uh, let me go into what each of these are. We have, and all of their temples are in different parts of Earth, but Krakan has sent the uh, Kestrel Key uh, to Earth. Uh, we have Icon and his Ivory Idol. We have uh, Valtor and his Verdant Vile. We have Watum and his Wondrous Waterfall. 
Uh, Feralah has uh, given us his fearsome fist, Ragador his ringed ruby, and Balthok his blinding brassiere, which is, which is not like a bra. There's another term for brassiere. <laughs> uh, and the, the very same- Oh, do you mean brazier? B-R-A-Z-I-E-R. Yes, brazier. I pronounce it brassiere, but yes, B-R-A-Z-I-E-R. I got in trouble with that once. It was like, no, brassiere is different. Brazier is the thing that makes fire, yes. So the story that is told here is that Juggernaut triggers the first gem in that X-Men story that we started with, but maybe because Gomer and Tar banished this aspect, or maybe because the temple fell, it sounds like the, the spell that was supposed to trigger the others was stopped until years later. Now in the Kurt Busiek story, we see several other characters receiving these powers from these other entities. And they form a group called the Exemplars. Now, again, their goal is to build this like massive ship and conquer Earth, divide it between them, and then they're going to have a war until only one survives. So all of them, and there's some pretty great characters that come out of this. They're supposed to be juggernaut-like characters, these Exemplars. They build this massive machine in order to enslave humanity, but Juggernaut wants to stop them because he's a hero guy now. And he's working with Professor X and Spider-Man and Iron Man and Thor and eventually the Avengers. They stop the Exemplars two different times. At the end of this battle, uh, the Octessence or the, this wager is done, but the Exemplars have maintained their power and they show up in continuity from time to time. They are not well used or even well known. Uh, and it's during this conflict that we see Sidorak working really hard to assert his dominance over Cain again, but Cain defies him. He keeps his power and defies Sidorak. He does not give Sidorak control over him. I'm not going to go a ton into who all the exemplars are or what they do. The, the key part of this that I think we need is the backstory given to Sidorak and how it changes our understanding of him as one of these entities who wants to conquer Earth. So tell me your thoughts on the Wager of the Octessons or the Eighth Day storyline, Hussein. Well, so I think the the issue I keep running back, and I feel like I'm just going to do this the entire time because I'm really trying to make sense of Sidorak is, is the bane of my existence right now. But um, <laughs> in the best possible way, right? Like as, as a comics guy, like I just, I love trying to figure this stuff out and having this conversation. But we, we heard Sidorak described as this multi-dimensional being who, Gomer and Tar have to they they stop that rage as that's captured. If the, you have this multi of him, yeah. the aspect of Sidorak, right? Uh, but if you have this multi-dimensional being, why is he making a wager over controlling the earth? It feels like either he would be powerful enough or the earth would be so insignificant that he doesn't need to do the wager. It's almost a little bit Zeus-like, right? He's like toying with the mortals to see what happens. It's almost like, uh, like, let's have a little contest. We'll kill a bunch of people and see who's the best right. one. Right. And I'm, it, just, I, it doesn't give me, I, I don't know if I know Sidorak any better. I think this is adding a layer of mythos. I don't know if it's still the same Sidorak or which aspect of Sidorak it's coming. I, I understand what you're saying about it being the, the complete Sidorak, but then that seems to weaken him from this thing that Gomar and Tar have been fighting against right or the the like if the aspect is this powerful how much stronger does the whole being have to be mark this is a totally separate story mark gruenwald gave us some stories uh in quasar of all places where he tells a story where whenever mortals are interacting with gods 
they go to this realm where the gods will use human understandings of their aspects in order to communicate with mortals. So basically, anytime Doctor Strange sits down and talks to eternity or any of these other cosmic aspects like infinity or the never queen, or there's a bajillion of them, there's these aspects that are created so that the mortals can, can see them. It's almost like any race that Galactus visits, they see Galactus in their own image, oh, right? Yeah. Uh, and th this, this it's almost, uh, I don't know, it's, Sidorak is so much bigger than mortals, but the this octessence is some version of him. The distinct piece here though, is this almost seems to be like the real Sidorak for the first time. The others have all been the rage aspect. And now we have this hint that there's a wider entity behind it all. Uh, it's yeah. an interesting thing. You know, it's it, you went to Zeus. I was actually thinking this is a bit like Job, uh, where it's a whole bunch of these powers. So, so it's not God and the devil. It's a whole bunch of demon-like, you know, so more parody involved here. But sort of doing this, like you said, doing this wagering. The other thing is, have you been watching, or do you know the show Cobra Kai on um, on Netflix? I'm familiar. I played with G.I. Joe's growing up, but I have not seen the show Cobra Kai. Oh, no, no, no. Cobra Kai is based on Karate Kid. Not, uh, of not Jedi. Of course, it is. I'm thinking Cobra Commander. <laughs> You're thinking Cobra Commander. Yes, exactly. <laughs> no, I have not seen Cobra Kai. So, you know, the premise is it's happening 30 years. It's it's real time. So it's 30 years after the original Karate Kid, and um, the the bad in the original Karate Kid, Johnny, I'm forgetting his last name. Uh, but you know, Johnny, um, uh, is trying to redeem himself. He's trying to become a good guy, and Kane reminds me of Johnny. This is like. I want to do the right thing, but I have all this baggage from 30 years ago, you know, with Johnny and, and Daniel uh, and Kane and Charles. It's like, I, I just, if you're watching, it makes sense. It, it's just like, Kane wants to do the right thing and Charles is in the way. Uh, Kurt Busiek is someone I trust to do Marvel continuity well. Dan Slot's another. Uh, just before yeah. this, if you guys listened to my Lucifer episode, literally the same volume of Avengers is when the Avengers have to fight Dominus or Dominex, the machine that Lucifer left behind. He weaves in these narratives and uh, this is a fun story. It's yeah. gods leaving stuff on earth and it's a big godlike battle between their avatars. It's hard to stack it all up for Sidorak specifically, but it's a great read. And George Perez's pencils on Avengers 24, 25 are so stunning. So read this if you haven't, it's, it's worth the read. Uh, any questions or comments on Sidorak before we keep going? We still have one more major retcon to his history that's added. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I did have during our break, I did think about what was happening in 1996 that we had heretic monks. And I realized that that's when sort of the uh, the Kung Fu movies, the, the wire Kung Fu movies like uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Uh, we're sort of hitting the mainstream, and I'm like, I'm sure there's a heretic monk story in there somewhere. This is like a this is like Highlander and Buffy era too. Yeah, no, there's a lot of crazy stuff. Uh, okay, so Juggernaut, we're gonna sum up a lot of stuff really quickly. Juggernaut joins the X Men, and uh, Sidorak is not super pleased because Juggernaut's being a hero instead of a monster now, and he starts leeching his power slowly. And these are all Chuck Austin stories. I'll talk to Chuck Austin literally about these stories in a few weeks, which I'm excited about. But in 2004, uh, Uncanny X-Men number 436, Sidorak powers up a teenager, this guy who has been like torturing animals and makes him a new juggernaut. And again, I'm kind of assuming this is the rage version of Sidorak. We don't quite know. Mm -hmm. But he sends this kid to get revenge on Kang. But Kang and She-Hulk work together to defeat the kid. Like that's kind of all you need here. Uh, did you have a chance to look at this story and do you have thoughts about it? I... I... 
this story was good and for two very specific things not good overall but there were two very specific things that sort of leapt out of me one is you see kane getting upset when she hulk calls him a moron and he's like i'm not a moron uh, the first thing is he's like i'm the son of a rocket scientist i'm not an idiot that's in the first issue of this arc and like, oh yeah, that's right. He is the son of a rocket scientist. So this is clearly something that is important to him. And then in the second arc, in the second issue of the arc, he gets really upset where she calls him a moron. But instead of getting angry, he's like, oh no, no, listen to me. I know how to fix this. And it was like, it was really Kane. It's the part of Kane that I really like, which is a Kane, the human facing his own insecurities. And rather than getting angry about his insecurities, and I think this gets into the Excalibur when we're going to, the Excalibur story we're getting into next, but really sort of saying, well, how do I work around my insecurities, right? Like, you think I'm an idiot. Let me not get angry at you for thinking I'm an idiot. Let me show you I'm not an idiot. And I really like that that aspect of of uh, Kane. So we, we also see the jealous God in this story, right? You are no longer worshiping me like I want. So I'm going to power someone else who's twisted. Right. and make you prove yourself and and also we see Sidorak like removing juggernaut's power so for a while there juggernaut seemed to have his own power independent of Sidorak and now Sidorak seems to be kind of removing or controlling some of that power again uh right. so maybe uh maybe the guy that juggernaut punched into a thousand pieces reformed this rage avatar and now he's starting right. to speak in juggernaut's mind uh new extent uh, sorry just but please you 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 just said something that that reminded me that as Sidorak is also choosing his new avatar his new um uh presence you know kane is abused and is dealing with that and all the rage around that and his rage with with uh uh with his relationship with charles but this new avatar this teenage kid is an animal torture right like it's not just a guy who's angry now we're dealing with and i'll defer to you as as, as the therapist but it feels more like somebody who's uh who's showing psychopathy and really you know like it's a whole other level of who sidorak is looking for to represent him on earth it's almost and, and again i'll ask chuck austin about this story specifically but it's almost as if like let's show you what a monstrous juggernaut could be and yeah. then remind you that kane's a really good guy actually yeah yeah uh, i think that's right and then things get really dark. So New Excalibur is a series that launched. Uh, it became something else later. It's short. It's meh. There's characters like Nocturne and uh, a few others who get some nice moments here. Dazzler's worked in in a weird way. Pete Wisdom is there. Juggernaut joins this team. They go on some adventures. Really, it's one of my least favorite runs of Juggernaut's whole chronology, except for that time he worked for the Red Skull and the Nazis in the Hulk books. <laughs> but uh, Juggernaut, uh, so toward the end of the title, it's New Excalibur 13 through 15. Frank Thierry has taken over. Thierry loves telling villain stories. He loves giving his villains a lot of meat and substance and personality sometimes to great effect, sometimes to very poor effect, because some of the stories are not super okay. This one is weird. So it's 2007, Frank Thierry's writing, Sidorak has started taunting Kane in his head, kind of like, uh, kind of like uh, 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 Moon Knight and uh, Khonshu. Khon Khonshu will like mm -hmm. taunt Moon Knight in his brain. It's almost like that. He starts wanting Kane to turn toward violence. He's poking at his insecurities. There's one moment where he suggests that Kane really wants to rape Nocturne, which is really uncomfortable. 
Um, it's revealed here in this story that Sidorak was once worshipped on Earth until he was banished to the Crimson Cosmos, so that much tracks. Then he entered the Crimson Gem and sent it to Earth so that he could have an avatar for his rage. That also tracks, even though it's a little different terminology. Then a man picked up the gem and changed into Juggernaut in Sidorak's form, and then this man began destroying and killing. So we have a story here where there's been a previous Juggernaut Instead of, so uh, to, to take us back, we had the idea that Juggernaut, or excuse me, that Sidorak existed on Earth and was like slaughtering people before he was banished. In this story, it almost makes it sound like Sidorak was influencing someone through the gem. And, uh, and that story took place after Sidorak destroyed a bunch of people and then got put in the gem. There was then a Juggernaut who then yeah. destroyed a bunch of people in his name. So in this story, Cain returns to Korea to the Fallen Temple. Sidorak tempts him with the Crimson Gem once again, but he told Cain that he'd have to fight another person who wanted to be the Juggernaut. So we see this martial artist who has apparently touched the gem and has become Juggernaut. So we, we add something to, to the mythos here. If you touch the gem, you don't just become Juggernaut. You have to fight someone else or the previous Juggernaut in order to become the new Juggernaut. That's a new aspect here completely. Yeah. So Cain just says, can I just have the gem instead of fighting for it? Sidorak then, who this may be true or he may be taunting Cain, and we're certainly going to talk about this the same. Sidorak claims that Charles Xavier had been his original uh, idea for who should be the juggernaut. And this seems to spark Cain into rage. He lashes out against this new like martial artist Korean guy who's now juggernaut and nearly kills him in his rage. But Excalibur arrives just then there's more worshipers of Sidorak here. They're clad in red. They fight them. Uh, Sidorak then reveals to Excalibur Cain's greatest shame. And this is a huge change for Cain's character that has never been picked up again. He says, Cain has had predecessors to the Juggernaut mantle. One such individual was Jin Taiko, J-I-N space T-A-I-K-O. Jin had served me well for decades. Regrettably, there came a day when he did not. It was on that day... I did what I often do when confronted with a disloyal juggernaut. I chose to have him replaced. Cain Marco had touched the gem of Sidorak, which gave him the right to challenge for the juggernaut mantle. To actually become the juggernaut, however, there is only one way to accomplish that. I admit it is not an easy task to become my juggernaut. I am a demanding master, requiring my name to be spread throughout the world through endless violence and destruction. I am also not without my jealousies. So when Tycho's village began to worship another in my stead, I demanded that village be raised to the ground and for everyone and everything as far as the eye could see to be utterly annihilated. Tycho's refusal became the source of our disassociation. Fortunately, his replacement had no such reservations. And in flashbacks, we see Cain killing Tycho and then arriving at his village as if he's going to destroy and slaughter everyone there. Sidorak then went quiet as Cain took the gem in the present, wrapped it in a rag, and took it back with him to the Excalibur base. So Cain is still accessing Sidorak's power without his influence, and he wraps up the gem and keeps it just in case. So we'll take up that in a moment. Hussein, let me hear your thoughts first on the idea that there have been previous juggernauts, including Jin Taiko. 
I I gotta say I like the idea of a history of juggernauts, you know, not one after the other, but I I do like the idea that other people are finding this this gem, are touching it, they're going on a rampage, and for me that seems to be in line with what Sidorak wants or this aspect of Sidorak wants. I like that as a narrative element, and I really wish that that was really the the canon that they were exploring and developing and and merging everything else into that. Um, I I really like the fact that Juggernaut had this secret, right? Because this is Juggernaut, not Kane Marco. I think there's something really you could explore there with the character, and I'm I'm kind of sad that it doesn't really get explored uh, in any meaningful way. I mean, one thing is that as you're talking, I'm realizing they could like modern writers could work in previous Juggernauts into past history. There yeah. could be Juggernaut in King Arthur's era. There could be Juggernaut in World War II. That's an interesting because we've seen that with like things like Ghost Rider. They go back to well, Iron Fist. Yeah. From the past. Iron Fist, same thing. Yeah, there's there could be old Juggernauts woven into storylines. The hardest thing to reconcile here is when the fuck did all this happen? Kane touches right. the gem, the temple collapses, and he's stuck for years or decades. So did he go commit this slaughter first? Or did he wait until he got out? And then in that first X-Men appearance, when he's stomping toward Professor X's house to try to get into the mansion, did he have to go slaughter Jin Taiko in his village first? It's an interesting thing because that adds a lot of darkness. It's something Kane has buried way in the back. Was it Kane? Was Kane completely being controlled by Sidorak? Because if our juggernaut is a mass murderer who has wiped out innocence, that makes a very difficult story for a heroic version of him to exist at all. Well, for me, this feels like a Logan moment, right? Like he's not fully in control of this these murders he's committing, at least at this early stage. I, I, again, I think there are things he does later that he's fully responsible for. But I think there are things that he does that he's not fully in control in the early juggernaut phase that I would be okay with us saying, like, he actually deals with that guilt a lot with all the other things he's dealing with, right? Like he recognizes what happened even if he wasn't in control he still holds himself responsible for it um and i and i think this whole uh charles was meant to be the original juggernaut i think just That's shows my next how question. evil sidorak is right and, and and on one hand it makes sense right somebody who's totally amoral who uh is willing to do what it takes to get what he needs done has shown via onslaught again anachronistically but uh, with the the timeline of the universe uh, of the comic universe, but that he's willing to do something like onslaught or or have this idea of onslaught in the back of his mind that he can generate onslaught. Why wouldn't he be a good juggernaut? I mean, it feels like a much better fit, but also feels mm. like Sidorak's just being a bastard and trying to tweak. Kane. Even before onslaught, and this is a little known thing, I think it's in the X Men Micronauts limited series. There is a an evil dark version of Xavier who takes on an astral form and is the villain they're facing in that issue. And that's previous to Onslaught. I think it's called the Avatar or something. I can't remember what its name is. Uh, but there's a dark version of Xavier. Uh, do you think Sidorak was trying to get Xavier to grab the gem? Or is he using this just as a fact to taunt Kane in this in this story? If I go back to the original first story, I think he's taunting Kane. Um, you know, it. Xavier is a telepath, but he's really not interesting, right? Kane is the interesting one. And the way Kane is set up is is he's the the Lomax of the brothers, right? Which I think is an unfair characterization, but I think that's how he's set up. 
Um, you know, I think there's a lot that makes Charles a more interesting selection for Juggernaut now than in the 1960s. So I, I want to see like a what if story. What if Charles became Juggernaut? Because telepathic Omega mutant Juggernaut yeah. is scary. That's a scary story. Was, wasn't there a what if? If Charles of, touched the... Charles becoming Juggernaut? I mean, I will look it up, but not that I'm familiar with at all. Uh, but I don't uh, maybe study, I don't study what ifs like I should. Um, I do think this still fits. The 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 complicated story of uh, Sidorak and what exists for him here. Uh, oh, there is apparently, I have to go read this. Uh, what if number 13 is... Uh, Xavier grabbing the gem instead of Juggernaut. I don't know I that I've read that in 30 years. Uh, I'm sad that I didn't read it first. Uh, fascinating. We'll have to look that up sometime and talk. But about they don't it. get into, from what I recall, they don't get into the Omega level qualities of Charles and his telepathy is not as strong. And I, yeah, I am not confident. I have read this story in, like since like the early 90s. Uh, I'm gonna have to go and look. Uh, so we'll have to look that up. But for our reality, the the it, this does fit together here. It still matters. And at the end of this new Excalibur story, Kane's teammates are very quick to forgive him, even though they just learned he committed this uh, supposed mass slaughter. So there does right. seem to be the understanding that he wasn't in control. Yeah. Uh, you think we're done? We're not. No. <laughs> no, no. In 2007, Christos Gage, who I think is wonderful, uh, wrote World War Hulk 2 and 3. Hulk is attacking Earth. This is a breakout limited that uh, Gage does some great stuff in. It's just, uh, it's story after story of the X-Men trying everything in their fucking power. Every battle tactic Cyclops can think of to stop Hulk and it's not working. Uh, Kane hears that the X-Men are in danger. So he takes this gem out that he's kept wrapped in a cloth. And this is, uh, this is him making the literal deal with the devil to save his friends, which is very heroic, but also very scary. Uh, he agrees to serve Sidorak if Sidorak will teleport him to the X-Men and give him his strength back. And Sidorak, or the rage aspect of Sidorak, says uh, that Cain will have to, quote, you begin to accept it now, but you must embrace it completely. There can be no turning back. Decide, Cain Marco, here surrounded by the rubble of your defeat and humiliation, decide what you want to be. So Juggernaut is back and Sidorak's in control at least for about five seconds. <laughs> he bites the Hulk and then he's off to serve Sidorak again. Uh, thoughts on the World War Hulk story? For me, this is Kane trying to be the hero again. I, you know, aside from the teleportation, I don't know why he needs to make a deal with Sidorak. That's the thing that I'm not quite sold on. It feels like, even if you can't get an X-Men to teleport you, you're in Excalibur. Somebody can get you there. And why aren't the X-Men figuring out a way to get Juggernaut to fight the Hulk? I think, he's, he's I think this is a story... Readers want a villainous Juggernaut. And I think this is a story where Gage is giving us the ability to have a bad guy Juggernaut again. Because Kane's been the, the teammate or the, the ally for a long time. And don't you just want Juggernaut smashing through the X-Men mansion so that everybody can fight him? I think it gives us the story readers probably wanted, but it doesn't really last very long. It doesn't last long. And I, I, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm in the minority in that I don't like 
I don't think I need a super villainous juggernaut. In the same way, I don't need a super villainous Magneto. I need uh, a Magneto who's in the gray areas. Who mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I can wear a shirt that says Magneto was mostly right. You know, because Magneto had valid points. And, you know, juggernaut is, he's not somebody I'm going to say, yeah, he's awesome. He's great. But I want him to, I want him to grow. And I feel like all that growth keeps getting retracted. I, I, I just, I have a soft spot for Kane. Yeah, you know, I want Kane to grow. Well, and they and they at least give us a heroic motivation, but it's in a weird place yeah. in World War Hulk of all places. Yeah. So we briefly see Sidorak alongside a bunch of extra dimensional entities in Captain Britain and the MI-13 in 2008. We're not going to go into that. In 2017, we then have Kieran Gillen, who, again, amazing, amazing. He's done incredible stuff with the X-Men over the yeah. years. Immortal X-Men is one of my very favorite books right now. He writes Uncanny X-Men number 542, 543. Uh, Juggernaut's been taken over by the Asgardian god Kurth, K-U-U-R-T-H. This is during the uh, Fear Itself storylines. A bunch of hammers fall to Earth. People like the Absorbing Man and the Grey Gargoyle and Titania turn into Asgardian gods. Juggernaut is one of them. Uh, The X-Men, specifically Magic, Colossus, and Kitty Pride, go into the Crimson Cosmos because Kurth is just like smashing everything it's the design on Kurth is amazing by the way i think it's my favorite juggernaut costume i think i love it the art on these two issues overall is just unbelievable uh so do you want to cover what happens when they go into the crimson cosmos or do you want me to do the summary um you're cool i'm happy to do it either way yeah yeah go ahead i'm doing a lot okay. of <laughs> so yeah, yeah no so I'm i'm happy to take it so Juggernaut is slash Korth is is rampage and you know you've got this great scene of the X Men have all these plans they they have the the people of San Francisco this is a utopian era and the people of San Francisco have a choice get rid of all the mutants um, and they will survive or uh, so basically it's a choice between the, the mutants have to give up the humans or humans have to give up the mutants and right now the humans and mutants are sort of uh, officially giving a, a unified stance um, and. Cyclops uh, is trying to come up with all these plans on how to stop Juggernaut, Quartz, uh, and they always fail. And he goes to Ileana slash Magic, who she says, I have an idea. And she takes Kitty and Colossus into uh, the Crimson Cosmos. Uh, the idea is that she will touch, her and Scott's plan is that she will touch the Crimson uh, Gem and become the new Juggernaut. And uh, uh, Sidorak will take the power away from Kane. So it's just uh, his him as Korth versus uh, Juggernaut. And uh, Peter, Colossus, Ileana's brother, says, no, you've sacrificed enough for all of us. Uh, and he's the one who touches the, the uh, Crimson Gem and he becomes the new Juggernaut. Um, it's it's great because it's this, it's this family dynamic. You know, the three, Ileana, Kitty Pride, and Colossus are standing on this floating rock in front of Sidorak, who looks sort of like a rock formation juggernaut slash um, like one of those trolls from Frozen. Like this is really, <laughs> and I, it sounds humorous, but it's like sort of that's what the design looks like, but it's really imposing and intimidating. Like it's really yeah, he's awesome. scary. Uh, he's the, scary. Cover, he's the cover really... art for this episode will include oh. this image because I feel like this is when we first see what Sidorak looks like. It's it not the so guy scary. with the pink elves. It's not Juggernaut in yeah. rock form. It's like this big, massive, fucking scary. Uh, yeah, he's 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 he looks like a god here. And and this is yeah, this is exactly where he looks intimidating. This is where we're like, okay, now I understand why Sidorak is imposing and scary. And Colossus and and Ileana and Kitty, it's this great family dynamic where 
Ileana is about to touch the gem. Colossus Pioth realizes what she's about to do, stops her, and Kitty's just aghast the entire time because she realizes there is no good option here. And it's just, again, the art on this is through the roof and what's unsaid in the script is so much more powerful than what could have been. So I, I just, I love these two pages where they go through this. And, um, you know, Colossus is huge in his armored up form. And the second he touches the gem, he's huger. Like, yeah. I, again, I love that transformation. It's like, it's a whole other, and you realize just how big Juggernaut actually is. Writers seem to struggle knowing what to do with Colossus from time to time. And this is a great Colossus story. It's Colossus this fighting his inner demons and his rage. There is a quote I want to give from Sidorak. He's all like teeth and tentacles in this form. He's all scary. He says to the X-Men, you come in your weak flesh to a dimension where annihilation is prayer. If you are pilgrims, then destruction will be your offering. If you are heretics, it will be your penance. So he's basically, I'm going to destroy you either way. I'll either offer it to you if you're pilgrims or it'll be your penance if you're heretics. But we go on a long set of stories where Colossus is uh, is Juggernaut now and he helps defeat Cain who's been taken over by Kurth and that doesn't last too long. That very same month in Journey into Mystery number 627, I, again, Kieran Gillen writing, this is his Loki series. If you have never read it, Hussein, it's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Have you read the, the Journey into Mystery Loki stories? No, I haven't. So Loki Loki's died in Thor and he's revived as a child. And Kieran Gillen tells a story about kid Loki. It's this epic, I think it runs about 20 issues. Uh, it's wonderful. Look it up. It's called Journey into Mystery. Okay. Kieran Gillen writing kid Loki. And it's one of, it's, it's stunning. One of my favorite uh, Gillen stories of all time. But he, in during this run, he also gives us a story of Sidorak speaking out against Asgardian influence at a meeting of extra dimensional entities. So there's a, all the gods are meeting and he's like, Hey, <laughs> they're, they took over my avatar. This isn't okay. Uh, so we see Colossus wrestle with this for a long time, but after a while, he also becomes the host for part of the Phoenix force Uh, So during this time, he goes to Sidorak in Uncanny X-Men, Volume 2, Number 15. This is during Gillen's like extinction team era when Namor's part of the team. Uh, And he asks to be released from the Juggernaut curse. And Sidorak says, and I quote, no, you will remain mine. Your recent backsliding aside, you have been my favorite avatar in thousands of years. Why do you think I've given you so much? Creatures like Cain spend most of their lives sinking, hiding from people like you. His offerings were like tidy bursts of light in a long night. But you heroes, in your constant battles, you destroy daily. Your offerings are an eternal banquet. You have brought me far more destruction than I could have hoped. Go with my blood-red blessing. I will forgive your recent impiety in anticipation of what I'm sure the future holds. The phoenix is the spirit of rebirth and destruction. Our desires are not incompatible. Uh, Colossus tries to force his freedom, but Sidorak just casts him aside and says, quote, understand this, a demon lord in his domain is outside natural law. Tell me your thoughts on uh, this idea of Sidorak uh, refusing Colossus' freedom. It's it's fucking great. I think it's fantastic. I love it, but I, I think that connection to Phoenix is so fascinating because you mentioned Galactus before as well. And it's right, it's these all-powerful beings. How do you justify their existence? How do you justify Phoenix or Galactus or here Sidorak? It's it's about destruction and rebirth, right? This is not, for Sidorak, these are not moral questions. And it's that quote you gave earlier, right? That uh, uh, with uh, Doctor Strange, it doesn't matter whether it's uh, uh, good acts or bad acts. The point is that 
this is the thing that needs to be done. Uh, and so for me, it's a fascinating connection. Um, Sidorak saying no to Colossus makes total sense. When you hear his logic, you're like, yeah, you're doing what I want better than I ever expected. Why would I let you get off the hook for that? You know, this you're is, in for a promotion, dude. Why am this, I gonna is a, this is a Sidorak that comes into focus for me. He makes sense now. Yeah. After all the decades of stories, now I get this guy. I understand who he is, despite the complex history. Um, in Uncanny X-Men number 20, same series, Magic takes Colossus to Limbo and she uses her soul sword. She's, by the way, uh, we had we heard Sidorak say a demon lord in his own realm is outside natural law. Magic is the dark dimension. Magic, mm -hmm. I'm sorry, Limbo, not Demarc. Limbo, Limbo, yeah. Magic is the ruler of Limbo. She uses her soul sword and she severs Piotr's connection to Sidorak, which frees him from the curse of the Juggernaut. And Sidorak is back needing Kane again because Magic intervened. <laughs> <laughs> um, in Dark Avengers 182, Jeff Parker shows us uh, Satana, the, the succubus character, giving Cain more of Sidorak's power by giving him another mark of Sidorak. So here's another example of uh, uh, like a tattoo <laughs> giving people power, which is something, again, we see in the comics a lot. And then we have Amazing X-Men 15 through 19, which is a Chris Yost story in 2015. Uh, do you want to tell us the story here, Hussein? Yeah, so we're looking at, we're, we've traveled back in time. It's now 736 AD. Um, this is, I'm assuming this is the point where Sidorak attacks Earth that we, mm -hmm. we heard about before, that this is that story. So we're going uh, we're back now, to his first arrival on Earth. We're going back to his first arrival on Earth, right? I'm assuming that's what this is. Um, he fights um, uh, the uh, uh, immortal Iron Fist, who at this point is Lee Park, and the sorcerer Zoom. Is that how you would say it? Zoom or Zon, X-U-N. Zon. XUN um, and um, uh, quote, mankind would not worship Sidorak, however, and eventually the creature was banished from Earth. Uh, but from the Crimson, but from the Crimson Cosmos, Sidorak thought only of returning to humanity. The demon was drawn to us like a moth to fire. He allowed human sorcerers to utilize his power, for Sidorak craved destruction, but it was not enough. Finally, he found a way for mankind to feel his power once again. While he could not truly return, Sidorak would have an avatar on Earth. Through the servant, mankind would once more know Sidorak, but they could feel his might and worship him for it. But Sidorak's avatars failed him time and time again. The gem that was his essence was lost, his powers wandered, but even then, but even still Sidorak thinks of Earth. And so this Earth. is interesting because it talks about his obsession with Earth and his with need Earth. to be worshipped here. But this, again, this speech doesn't take away from anything. It just shows us an additional story and weirdly works in the Iron Fist fighting, <laughs> fighting Sidorak back in 736 AD. But is this the aspect, right? That's the thing where I'm getting tripped up. Is this the aspect or is this complete Sidorak? It's, it seems to me this is Sidorak. Uh, we also have that story about the heretic monks bringing his rage to earth. So we don't quite yeah, know which we one We don't is. quite know, right? We're, we're, we're walking into this, right? And we know Gomer is, uh, is incredibly long lived. Yes. Um, and we don't know when that actual heretic monk thing happened. Yes. So I'm, yeah, yeah. It's also, um, it's also possible Sidorex come to Earth like eight different times, like fucking worship me, <laughs> and they just banish. Right, exactly. He's like, I keep trying, I keep trying. <laughs> and and it, you know, you talked about the octessence and the title of that story was Eighth Day, and that's the reason I thought of Job is because yeah, yeah. Obviously, it's the Eighth Day and the octessence, but I'm also thinking, well, seven days of creation in the quote unquote Abrahamic creation stories. So what happens on the eighth days? you've got the wagers going on about what happens to humanity. So even though it's listed a thousand years ago, 
it feels like you could have pushed back a little bit further and be <laughs> just as much fun, you know? Uh, so when we are in this amazing X-Men story, Sidorak creates a new crimson gem. Uh, Kane's not working for him. Piotr's not working for him. And he wants someone to. And there's basically a big contest. Uh, the X-Men fight, fight this big, like, massive crimson demon that serves Sidorak. And there's a bunch of assassins that have, like, heeded the call of Sidorak. They're coming to try to get the uh, the gem. Uh, we see characters like Mankiller, who I love, Katrina Van Horn. Oof, I need to do an mm-hmm. episode on her one day. Uh, lesbian goddess, I love her. Uh, but Jin and Crossbones and Kane Marco, who has been living happily as, like, a farmer in Utah, of all places, <laughs> during this time. Uh, but eventually the person who grabs the gem is Ahmed Abdul or the living, the living pharaoh, the living monolith. And he turns into this fucking giant size, like skyscraper sized a juggernaut. And it's kind of scary. And the X-Men are like, oh, dude, we don't want to fight him. Let's just sit down and talk about what we should do. <laughs> and before before this new juggernaut can do very much, uh, Sidorak hears Colossus offering to take the juggernaut power back. And he promises to come after Sidorak himself. I just said Colossus. I meant Kane. Excuse me. Kane promises to come after Sidorak. Like, if you give me your power, I will fucking fight you. I will come after you. And Sidorak's like, ooh, intriguing. And so he makes Kane juggernaut again. So this is like the third or fourth time Kane has given back into letting Sidorak be in control of him, even though he's freed himself multiple times. The image of uh, the living monolith juggernaut is great. We're going to do the trial of the, of Ahmed Abdul on my podcast at some point in the next year. And we'll <laughs> talk more about this story. Uh, but uh, do, do you have thoughts on this storyline where everybody's uh, Sidorak's like, fight over me. <laughs> the winner can have my power. I, so again, that totally feels in line with what we know of Sidorak so far. And it feels particularly with his later evolution. I'm okay with that. I don't understand why he agrees to Kane fighting him directly, though. That doesn't quite it's almost like he wants a challenge he's like okay yeah i'm into it <laughs> yeah and then but then he gives him an opportunity to do it and i'm like but that feels a little bit out he's like no no i just need you to create destruction to get people worshiping like if he's like oh yeah if i come into this world and we fight there'll be all this destruction i'm good with that but this is all happening outside this world it's all happening in the crimson cosmos so it's like again that motivation doesn't quite click for me but kane volunteering to be the juggernaut again totally I'm the only one who's been able to control this power after my initial sort of outburst. It shouldn't go to Ahmed Abdul. It shouldn't go to the man killer. It should go to like it should go to anybody else. Nobody else can control it like I can control it. Re- regarding you and I, it is not for men to understand the minds of rage gods from other dimensions to say. Right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We're getting near the end, listeners. I know we have, uh, you You must be like, oh my God, this is so much. It's a long episode, but I hope you're feeling inspired. It is a yeah 2018 well i mean this is sidorak from the eighth day of creation so i mean there's a lot to cover (laughs) a lot to cover even though there's not a lot to cover uh 2018 we get two sidorak stories one thor volume five number one jason aaron shows us like juggernaut is working for sidorak he's working for uh sidorak with sidorak's disciples we see a new temple to sidorak in thailand uh their power is at its peak this cult has obtained what we call the Warlock's Eye, which is like a mind control. They want to conquer the planet for Sidorak, basically. But Thor beats Kane pretty easily, and Sidorak is pissed. So following up on this story in X-Men Black Juggernaut number one, uh, Kane is captured by the worshippers of Sidorak. And this is where we get the term Rage Father <laughs> in reference to Sidorak. Like, oh, great Rage Father in the sky, which I think is great. 
Uh, they take him back to this temple in Thailand and they put him in some dream bindings. They want to test his worthiness to keep uh, serving Sidorak. Juggernaut breaks free of this spell. He kills Sidorak's servants. They have like this mock fight against Juggernaut. They confront his uh, insecurities, make him feel like a child. Kane fights back. He wakes up. Uh, Sidorak uh, helps Kane realize he'd been in a dream the whole time. Kane now vows revenge. And here's a reference that we never see referenced before or after. He needs to go after and find the, quote, seven other gems of Sidorak in order to be able to fight Sidorak directly. But before that can happen, in 2019, in Uncanny X-Men Volume 5, number 21, Matthew Rosenberg again gives us a story where the Crimson Gem is severed from Juggernaut and shattered. So just a quick turnaround here. Juggernaut gives into the power again. He becomes a villain for a second. Thor defeats him. Sidorak punishes him. Juggernaut frees himself and then uh, is going to go after Sidorak, but, but the Crimson Gem is removed from him again. Uh, and these are like three stories that have nothing to do with each other, except they all involve Juggernaut. Uh, how you doing with that one? I What? <laughs> I feel like we're finally getting some cohesion and then it's like, now nah, we'll throw it all out the window. We can't make it have too much sense. Because Sidorak's just always a hot mess. Uh, so let's wrap it up and we'll kind of finish our final thoughts. Tell us if you're willing to say about the uh, Fabian Nicieza Juggernaut series from 2020. Oh, that's where he goes to Budapest. And, and this, this story is all over the place. <laughs> this is what sets him up for Krakoa. So this is Juggernaut here. And then he and then he goes into his X-Men Unlimited Infinity comic series. And then he joins the Legion of X. So this is like modern Juggernaut continuity. Right. This is where we start getting the the real the Juggernaut of, of today. Um, so so the story is um, Kane goes to Budapest. He because he's been hearing stories about people finding uh, images of Sidorak uh, and the walls there. Then he goes to North Korea where somebody's got the forge of Sidorak. Um, a guy making Sidorak weapons out of like Sidorak artifacts. Sidorak artifacts. He's made a juggernaut arm armor. Um, and then and Kane kills the guy or seems to kill the guy and steals the armor. Um, then he went to one. Oh, uh, and the, the, the office of national emergency, the, uh, yeah, the, the of, sentinel guys. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. That's basically what happens when you give the cops too much money. Um, <laughs> cause they've got the, they've got the shattered remnant, shattered remnants of the crimson gem there. Right. They just take that money and buy weapons and steal weapons and use them against people. And yeah. Uh, anyway. So, so Kane goes, um, uh, uh, refusing to serve Sidorak. He goes to Sidorak, refuses to serve Sidorak, um, and supposedly keeps Sidorak from reaching out to new avatars on Earth. So the, the very quick version, this is a series of flashbacks. There's a bunch of other stuff happening in this title with like the character D-Cell and a bunch of other things. But the very quick story here is Juggernaut finds a way to, to keep being Juggernaut by using Sidorak artifacts. And Sidorak has no influence and he keeps the gem shattered. He specifically goes to Sidorak and says, fuck you, I'm not serving you anymore. I get to keep being Kane on my own. And again, it's another new armor for Juggernaut. Uh, thoughts on that? I mean, it seems like a really convoluted way to get us where I'd like Kane to be, which is independent of, uh, of Sidorak. Um, I... 
you know, I would love to see Sidorak come back, but I'd love to see his mythology sort of normalized. Yeah, yeah. I'd love for us to come back to getting a chain of juggernauts. So we actually have juggernaut, a Sidorak juggernaut, and a Kane Marco juggernaut, and see, like, that can be, could be really fun, narratively speaking. But yeah, I'm not, I'm not convinced uh, that, uh, that Sidorak's gone for, for, for good. It is inevitable that we're going to get like a battle of the juggernauts story at some point in the next year or two. It's just going to happen. But we get one more Sidorak story. And this one is a surprising one. Uh, we get Alex Pecknadel, who's a really upcoming uh, writer. I, I'm hoping to interview Alex at some point on the podcast. In the story Death of Doctor Strange, uh, uh, the Avengers focus. So sure. Strange has been killed in the comics. There's these women called like the three mothers who are going from realm to realm and just wiping everything out. And they, it, it's this story that kind of spills into different titles. So apparently these three mothers have passed through the Crimson Cosmos and Sidorak is afraid of them and has left. He has fled his realm. And we get for the first time the, the revelation that there are there are people living here. There are people living in the Crimson Cosmos, and there is uh, so basically to say what happens in this story: a portal opens in the nexus of all realities on Earth. A new Juggernaut stomps through, killing anyone that's in its path. Uh, soon there are multiple Juggernaut constructs, and they're building a tower called the Morning Spire. Morning with an M O U, like you're grieving. Uh, the Avengers are fighting to stop these Juggernaut constructs. Uh, Iron Man goes into the Crimson Cosmos and he sees like little ruby colored children dying there. It's like a war zone. And we learn that there was one child there, maybe a mutant of some kind, who was able to manipulate the Crimson Bands in the cosmos. And all of her people get slaughtered. And so she has now come through this portal to Earth and is having these juggernaut constructs that she's made build a spire of mourning uh, to grieve her people. So it's a little kid who is basically kind of a new juggernaut in a way. The Avengers let her finish her tower. The grief that she's feeling is spread throughout the world and everyone feels uh, feels it. But it's uh, we get three things. Number one, there are people living in the cosmos. Number two, we have this child who can now ask, uh, summon. She almost seems to have like a mutant ability to use the crimson bands. And number three, Sidorak left. He fled his people uh, and abandoned them because he was threatened by these three mothers. Uh, thoughts on this story, which is kind of a game changer in a weird place. It is a game changer, and I again, I'm still, I'm keep trying to fit, uh, uh, you know, everything together in my head. You know, I'd love to have these people come from the shards of the Crimson Gem. Uh, you know, that that's a real, you know, the second you smash the gem, you smashed aspects of Sidorak. So these are all aspects of the aspect of Sidorak. So main Sidorak is left with these <laughs> aspects. And so it makes sense. One of them is hanging on to the ability to, to wield the Crimson Bands. Um, but I do like that the Avengers decided not to end grief, right? I mean, I, I think the thing we keep running into with the Avengers is they want to stop something halfway through because they don't understand it and they're afraid of the unknown. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad they sort of let this through. Well, and this gives us the ability to have Sidorak and Juggernaut stories that don't involve Kane at all. Uh, yeah. I liked I liked this character, this little girl who's not really named. Uh, it's it's a beautiful story. I'm really excited to see uh, Alex Pagnato kind of coming up. I think uh, I think they're great. They're telling amazing stories. 
so just just as a disclaimer, we do have other juggernauts out there. We do have other versions of the Crimson Gem and the Crimson Bands of Sidorak that are used all over Marvel. We're not covering it all today. But this is a long, nearly three-hour episode where we are covering uh, Sidorak in all of his uh, realms. I am inspired. I am exhausted. I am uh, challenged by this conversation. But I feel like I have an understanding of this of this entity now. Uh, Hussein, what thoughts are you leaving with or or new understandings as we wrap up today? I think next time we got to do this over pizza. Uh, <laughs> and... I um, you know, I, I've really been growing into my appreciation of Kane. I think this helps tremendously because I never thought about Kane in relationship to Sidorak. I always thought about him in relationship to Charles. So this has actually been really helpful. I mean, I shouldn't say never, but really trying to delve into that relationship between Kane and, and Sidorak has been incredibly, incredibly helpful. Uh, I still don't understand anything about Sidorak overall, but you know, there's some good moments in here that, that I really like. Uh, but for me, it's like I, I really like it for its relationship to King. Anyone who has listened is clearly an X-Men fan and a fan of this podcast and a fan of Hussein Rashid. But uh, I hope, I don't think anyone has ever done anything like this on this character. Uh, I don't think anyone has ever analyzed Sidorak in this way. And I, I feel like it all works. I feel like we could tell one clean story that gives us Sidorak's whole timeline. Here's where he came from. Here's what his motivations are. Here's what happened with all these different adventures. But I do think we leave this with some pretty clear understanding of what Sidorak is, uh, at least as interpreted by mortals. We take these stories from the 60s, reinterpret them in the 70s, 90s, and then we get modern writers who are telling much more sophisticated stories than the stuff that we grew up with uh, using these mythos in, in really incredible ways. Uh, saying what a delight to hang out with you it is not many people that would give up three hours on a holiday to just sit down and nerd out over comics what an incredible gift you've given me today thank you uh thank we you, next Chad. we next have you coming back on the podcast for the trial of havoc in uh in several yep. weeks i'm thrilled to have you back uh if people want to find you online uh where can they find you and do you have anything you'd like to announce coming out in the next while yeah so you can find me on my website hussainrashid.com um, I'm on Twitter at Islamo Yankee, I-S-L-A-M-O-Y-A-N-K-E-E. -E. Um, I have a new academic book that's coming out. Uh, this will air early September, actually in the month of September, on teaching religious studies. It's a co-edited volume, um, which if you're interested in how to teach religious studies or teaching in general, please feel free to check it out. It's called Teaching Critical Religious Studies. But in terms of more popular things, nothing on the immediate horizon. There are lots of things I want to pitch. I just need to make sure I have time to be able to do it. <laughs> oh, God, I know how you feel. I want to take a month off <laughs> and just write right now. Yeah. Uh, Grimalk and Lane, you can find on Grimalk and PP like podcast on Twitter or Grimalk and underscore Lane on Instagram. As always, we're posting tons of content. We have our t-shirt shop up if you are a Patreon listener. Uh, we have great stuff coming up here too. The next episodes, the next three episodes of my podcast have all been recorded uh, as, as we've uh, as we're recording this one, which is funny. But the next episode after this is X Men Fifty Six featuring uh, Renee Winterstater. It's really fun. Uh, our next Patreon episode is going to feature the Savage Land Mutate character Lorelai, which I'm recording with Demanda Martini, who is coming in Lorelai drag, and it's going to be fantastic. Uh, so thank you, thank you, Hussein. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna wrap up, and we'll see you back here uh, next time on Great Balkan Lane.